It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And it was hot. It was so hot. It was, it was like a 95, 100 degrees in the shade. The wind never blew. And they say that New Orleans has humidity down there, which kind of cools us off. That's bullshit. It was, un, it was death heat. Inside the convention center, it was so stifling hot, people tried to stay outside. Hot as hell, 100-something degrees. It's hot. It was very, very hot at that time. It was 97, 98 degrees. It was hot. And the heat radiating off of the highway yeah. at night was intensely hot. It's hot as hell. That was the worst summer. I mean, that that was there was some. I mean, that that heat was ridiculous. Man, it was hot as heck in here. It was beyond Africa heat. If Africa heat was anything like that, like I said before, and I'll say it again, they keep saying go back to Africa. Hell no. As we saw this summer, heat waves are a huge threat to people's health. Doctors are now finding that one group in particular is vulnerable, and that is pregnant women. NPR's Lauren Sommer reports on how climate change is becoming a part of prenatal care. Being seven months pregnant is not exactly comfortable. Then there's being seven months pregnant in 110 degrees with a broken air conditioner. It was the most challenging time. Kishel Brown lives with her three kids and grandma on the west side of Fresno in California's Central Valley. She's expecting her fourth, a baby boy, this fall. The heat wave meant that air conditioning repair services were booked up for at least a week. You know, I just kept telling the kids, we're going to get through it. <laughs> it happened during the hottest July ever recorded in Fresno. Temperatures were hotter than 99 degrees on every day that month, except one. Like my doctor told me, if it's over 103, 104 do not go outside if, I, if I'm able not to, you know, make my appointments early. But with three kids to take care of, it's not easy to avoid the heat. And Brown says it's the same for the women around her. She's part of Fresno County's Black Infant Health Program, where a group of 10 expecting moms meet each week. We just encourage each other what it's like, you know, being Black pregnant and now, you know, in this society. This part of the Central Valley already has some of the highest rates of preterm birth in California. It's even riskier for Black mothers. One of the girls in the group, you know, she didn't have transportation and she's running out all these appointments on the bus and then goes into preterm labor. Now, researchers are finding that extreme heat could be one of the reasons why. It was actually quite shocking to see that all women were at increased risk. Rupa Basu is an epidemiologist at California's Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. At the beginning of her career, she studied how heat can be dangerous for the elderly. Not much was known about the risk for pregnancy, but then she became pregnant herself. I would feel my body just really warm up, and I'm like, this is what I've been writing about, I mean, the elderly and infants, and maybe pregnant women are also feeling this. You know, maybe I'm not alone. Basu looked at 60,000 births in California and found that for every 10 degrees it's hotter, the risk of preterm birth goes up 8%. For Black mothers, it's twice that. Other studies have found similar risks. Really what we think is that with heat exposure, dehydration is really the root cause. 
Basu says dehydration triggers hormones in a woman's body that causes blood flow in the uterus to drop and can trigger contractions. Heat also raises the risk of stillbirth and low birth weight. What I've been telling patients recently, it really is a bun in a really hot oven. And that's a dangerous scenario. Dr. Nathaniel DiNicola is an OBGYN who's also an environmental health expert for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. He says with climate change making heat waves increasingly common, the impact is already showing up in OBGYN offices. But many pregnant women aren't aware of the risks. More needs to be done in terms of training a whole generation of women's health providers that we should be talking about this, not just as problems come up, but really kind of routinely and, and prophylactically. DiNicola's association recently put out clinical guidance about heat for OBGYNs to use with patients. But he says it can take 17 years for medical guidance to reach widespread use. However, in this last year, like in telehealth, that was really more like 17 minutes. And I would say the climate crisis, while it's not yet seen in the same kind of urgency as the global pandemic with COVID-19 was, it's every bit as as urgent. He and other experts say a good place to start when public health alerts go out about heat waves, make sure they specifically mention pregnant women, too. Lauren Summer, NPR News. The Oregon Trail, the Wild West. This country has a big racial gap when it comes to home ownership. According to the Urban Institute, 72% of white Americans own their homes. For Hispanics, it's just 48%. And for black Americans... 42%. It's a problem that's been shaped by lending practices, generational wealth, urban planning, and in a small way by love letters. Dina Pritchett reports. A few years ago, Heather Barnhart and her husband Carl were selling their first home. The offer was lower than they were hoping for, and they were going to walk away. But then the realtor handed over a letter from the prospective buyers. I guess we just wanted someone to, to love the house as much as we did. And this couple said they did. They were young looking to build a life together. I said to Carl, this reminds me of us 10 years ago, and that influenced us. Letters like these have become common, especially in hot markets. Chris Bonner has been selling homes in Portland, Oregon for over 30 years. Home ownership kind of is that meeting of finances and emotion, and I have definitely seen firsthand that sellers are very swayed by the stories of the buyers. Stories that say, I love your home. I want to build a life here. I'm like you. But the impact isn't always positive. I've had buyers who did not get their offer accepted. They were the highest offer. I confirmed with the listing agent that the terms were best. And they said to me, well, my seller just didn't think they were a good fit for the neighborhood. And so that was a really chilling thing to hear. Bonner doesn't think it's a coincidence that these were non-white buyers making an offer in a predominantly white neighborhood. Other realtors, like Portland's Chris Gwynn III, have similar stories. My niece and her husband were writing an offer, and the agent asked me a weird question. They go like, well, do you have a picture of them? Now, discriminating on the basis of race or gender or family status is illegal under the Fair Housing Act. But it can be hard to prove, and sometimes hard to see, even for the people doing it. Professor Justin Steele studies urban inequality and racial justice at MIT. These types of letters introduce a possibility for discrimination, either conscious intentional discrimination or, or probably more commonly unconscious unintentional discrimination. And that bias happens in a landscape that's already skewed. We have segregated and unequal neighborhoods, but also 
really unequal rates of home ownership and unequal rates of household wealth. The National Association of Realtors has warned about love letters' potential to allow discrimination. And the state of Oregon just became the first to restrict them. Representative Mark Meek sponsored the bill. He is also a realtor. Something very small and simple like this could allow folks that are looking for homes to have an opportunity based on their qualifications and not necessarily, you know, what they look like and their family makeup. These patterns and practices run deep. Oregon came into the union with laws that prevented black people from settling in the state. This is supposed to be, for lack of a better term, a white homeland. You could even be a slave. They didn't want anybody here that looked like me. Realtor Chris Quinn III says it's understandable that potential buyers want to tell their stories, especially when they can't outbid other offers. But he's seen that it can do more harm than good. I won't miss it. You know, if they got a pre-approval letter, that's one hell of a love letter. Systemic problems take systemic solutions. Removing love letters and that personal bias is a small step. But it's one that Oregon lawmakers hope can help write a more equitable future. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett in Portland, Oregon. Her truck was on fire, and she didn't notice because she was inside of it, and her help was outside of the truck. And um, it, was, uh, it was near the tank. Apparently, uh, I believe, I, I, I don't want to um, uh, uh, put place blame on, the, uh, on that particular occurrence without, uh, without full knowledge, but I believe it was a hydraulic issue. Um, a hydraulic fluid um, uh, uh, became ignited somehow. And if, if, if her workers, if her helpers were busy um, or away from the vehicle and, and did not notice that particular fire, that would have been a, another uh, explosion in Dallas uh, within a week uh, of the previous explosion. Uh, which was uh, an apartment complex near um, where I grew up, but because of poor maintenance. Uh, that's, that's how I tie those together. Uh, thank you, I need my line. The city of Dallas says for now it will pay for the nearly 300 displaced residents staying at hotels after their Oak Cliff apartment building exploded this week. The fire department has since turned the building over to the owner of Highland Hills Apartments as the investigation into the cause of the explosion continues. Fox Wars Davidson Tendry has the latest on frustrations from some displaced residents now seeking answers. Investigators are still working to find out what led to a gas explosion at Highland Hills Apartments in southeast Oak Cliff last week. Tenants are staying in hotels. They just expected us to sit in the hotel and enjoy it like a vacation or something. And some tenants and community organizers are demanding answers. You're going to do this. The city is going to do that. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. You're going to do this. You're going to. From their city council member, Tanel Atkins, during a press conference Sunday morning. We are going to leave no one behind. Tenants cleared out of the complex, two hotels paid for by the city, but they were initially told they had to be out by Monday. The issue, even for ones without damage to their units, the gas is off and there's no hot water. No hot water and there's no gas. And it's under investigation. Ain't no gas, no hot water, nothing over there. How you gonna say that? Councilman Atkins says it'll be that way until the property owner finishes inspections. They gotta go by unit by unit to make sure everything is taken care of. In the meantime, he says the city is paying to extend their stays. No one is going to be displaced. They can still stay in the hotel. 
there is not a deadline they're going to get kicked out of the hotel. We don't know when the owner will finish the auto repairs. The city says it's the property owner's responsibility, but it's footing the bill for now, calling it an emergency situation. We the city data don't control what the owner gets get done. He got insurance paying, we don't know. One resident recalls waking up to the explosion, losing many of her belongings and evacuating. I just got my clothes, everything I could get. Tenants say it's difficult living day to day out of a hotel. But a lot of the residents here don't even feel safe to go back. You would be there until we find out when it's safe for you to go back to the apartment. That is coming from me, not no one else. For now, they'd really like to know what led to the explosion. We want answers too. We have lives to get back to. David Centendry, Fox 4 News. Just since that, that being true, um, that seems like just a part of racism, white supremacy. There's going to be some confusion on the part of non-white people about racial classifications. That just seems like that's just going to Absolutely. Be. That's why I said that's one of the main, you know, out of the six uh, racial confusion things that they do, the tailoring and all like that, that's one of the main ones, racial classification confusion. When they first started classifying people, it was just three classifications. Now it's 21. How did that happen? People haven't changed that much on the planet in the last 200, uh, uh, what, 1700, right? That's when that, uh, I think it was 1700 when it first started. No, 1800, when they had three classifications in this area of the world. Now it's 21, but white always stands by itself. On every time they have taken a classification, set up a classification system, white is not even in alphabetical order. White is always at the top and always stands alone. It starts off, just look at any of the scales, I mean, where it says racial classifications. Pick out any of them. At the top is white. And then from there, I mean, they just go in all kinds of stuff. Guamanian, Shamoro, some other race. More than one in seven people living in the U.S. identify with a mysterious racial category. It's called, quote, some other race. And it is now the country's second largest racial group after white, according to the latest census results. Many experts say that's a big problem for protecting people's civil rights. NPR's census correspondent, Hansi Lo Wong, explains. For two people I interviewed, the census question about race has been almost impossible to answer. I actually remember calling my dad and saying, what race are you putting? I don't know what to put. I almost wanted to just skip that question, to be honest. That was Leani Garcia-Torres. I live in Brooklyn, New York. And Frank Alvarez. I'm from Los Angeles, California. For the 2020 census, both of them identified as Hispanic or Latino, which is an ethnicity, according to the federal government, and not a race. Alvarez and Garcia-Torres say the racial categories that were on the form didn't really fit them. Not the boxes for American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian and Pacific Islander groups, black or white. Both of my parents are from the island of Puerto Rico. Growing up, you know, we were in a very traditional Guatemalan home. We're just historically 
pretty mixed. I think I just identify with my ethnicity. If you look at anyone in my family, you wouldn't really be able to guess a race. We just look vaguely tan, I would say. So for last year's headcount, Garcia Torres and Alvarez were among the nearly 50 million people who checked off some other race or wrote in an answer the Census Bureau sorted into that category. And more than 90% of that group is Latino. This is a red flag. It's been a red flag that's been around for a very long time. Cristina Mora is a sociologist at UC Berkeley who studies race and ethnicity. Mora says the some other race category is obscuring the identities of many Latinx people, and that makes it harder to enforce anti-discrimination laws. If we're not represented in the data, we're never going to have a true sense of racial justice. We're never really going to have a sense of who is this rapidly growing, dynamic, and diverse population in this country. After the 2000 count, the Census Bureau almost got rid of the some other race category. Officials thought that could have helped more Latinos answer the race question. For a long time, there was the sense that there wasn't anything wrong with the question. This is Clara Rodriguez, a sociologist at Fordham University and author of Changing Race, Latinos, the Census, and the History of Ethnicity in the United States. But rather the Hispanics didn't understand the question. And I remember thinking, wow, some other race was something to be taken seriously not to be dismissed as a misunderstanding. The Census Bureau did propose changing its questions for last year's count. Research showed that if it combined the two separate questions about Latino origins and race into one, it could reduce the share of people identifying as some of the race, and it would not skew the shares of Latinos who also identify as black or white. But that change required approval from the White House's Office of Management and Budget during former President Donald Trump's administration. And that didn't happen. Now that planning has started for the next census, Nancy Lopez, who is a sociologist at the University of New Mexico, wants to see a different kind of race question added. Not every Latino is a brown-skinned Latino. There are white Latinos. There are black Latinos like myself. And there are Latinos who are also street race Asian. People's street race, Lopez says, is what they think strangers assume their race to be. The national guidelines need to understand that discrimination is happening based on how you look, right? The visual cues that people assume represent something about you. It's important to be able to click a box that says who we are instead of what we're not. Julissa Arce is an immigrant from Mexico who now lives in Los Angeles. Last year, she clicked the boxes for American Indian, Chinese, and some other race. We've been here since before it was called the United States. And I think we deserve to be accurately represented. And for our say, that means having a racial category on the 2030 census for Latino. Anzila Wong, NPR News. Niggas hate now! Shit! Turn, turn, niggas are breaking your house? You want to save your money? Put it in your books. Because <laughs> niggas don't read. Just put the money in the books. Shit, books are like kryptonite to a nigga. <laughs> Here's a book. No! Big announcement yesterday, all three major public library systems in New York City are eliminating late fees. That's the New York Public Library, which, if you didn't know, only serves three of the five boroughs, Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island, as well as the Brooklyn Public Library and the Queens Library System, which technically are separate. And in a joint statement, they said the goal of this policy shift is to create a more equitable system 
that doesn't disproportionately affect people in poorer neighborhoods and to encourage more people to utilize their local public library branches. Remember, libraries today are about a lot more than books, but they also think late fees discourage the returning of books rather than incentivize it. So with me now to talk about the push to end late fees, as well as the reopening of public libraries at this point in the pandemic, and library users to take your calls, is Dennis Walcott, President and CEO of the Queen's Library System. Good morning, Dennis. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you for doing this. And good morning, Brian. First, belated happy birthday, (laughs) and thank you for having me. And I look forward to you joining me in my 70s. Uh, next year when you turn that age. So happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. So how did the library system uh, decide to eliminate fees and and given all the lost revenue from COVID, among other things, why now? So I got to give a lot of credit to Tony Marks and Linda Johnson, who have been uh, really front and center. Tony, as you know, is the president of the New York Public Library, and Linda is the president of the Brooklyn Public Library. And when the pandemic started, we basically said we're not going to charge any late fees and fines because people can't get their books back, and we're not going to do that. And we were able to adjust our budgets accordingly and to absorb the lost revenue from the late fees. And we have been wanting to do this all along. And as you indicated, we're three separate entities, three separate 501c3s. We went to our boards. Our boards passed policies allowing us to do this. And that's what we announced. So as of yesterday, there will not be any more late fines fees. Uh, And then we wiped the books clean of individuals who owed fines and fees from before. So it's a really brand new day in New York City, and it's changing really policies of over 100 years old uh, to do something totally different. So is this equity-based? Is this psychology-based? Because you discover that late fees disincentivize returning books rather than incentivize it. What's at the top of your list? So it's definitely equity-based. I mean, the goal is to make sure that we have an equitable system and responding to our customers in a way that allow them to take full advantage of our libraries. But it's also dealing with the anchor that's been around folks' necks uh, as far as late fees and serving as a deterrent from coming in our door. I tell the story of when I was a child, I still remember uh, having late fees and fines on my books and being hesitant to go to my local library, the St. Albans Library in Queens. And I shouldn't be that way as a child, but then that was the reality. And we don't want any child to really feel that way, nor do we want any adult. One day I was in one of our libraries, the Lefrak City Library, and a young boy came in with his sister, and he had a ton of books he wanted to take out. And unfortunately, he had owned fines from before, and he was prevented from taking out those books. And even though we have a read down your fee program, um, the child, really, I could see him being crestfallen. So I knew our children's librarian and our desk folks would work the details out with him to allow him to do what was necessary to get the books. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't have any child in that position at all. We should not have any adult in that position. And this is all about making sure we create an equitable library system for all residents and all income levels and all backgrounds. 
And here's a stat to that point. The Brooklyn Public Library says the branches with the most blocked cards, blocked because late fees weren't paid, is uh, in its library system are in neighborhoods where more than 20% of households live below the poverty line. Were things similar for the Queens Library System that you run? That is true. It's that as well as I'll give you another stat that 65% of those individuals who are blocked are 18 and under. Again, that's an impact to teenagers and younger. That's a heck of a figure, and that shouldn't be. So that's a major, major reason why we did what we did. And Tony and New York Public Library can cite their figures as well. But the disproportionate impact on communities of color, those who are lower income, is tremendous, and we don't want that to exist at all. And it will not exist moving forward. What about the... um economic impact of this. Uh, obviously, a nonprofit like a library isn't trying to make money, but how will you make up for the revenue that late fees would have brought? I don't have the stats for Queens, but I read that in 2019, the New York public library system covering Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island brought in a little over $3 million in late fees. So we brought in in Queens roughly $940,000. And we just have to adjust, and we've been adjusting all along during the pandemic, and you know, we're very thankful to the city for its support, and then we've been raising money privately as well, and it's a necessary adjustment because, again, we don't want to have uh, revenue on the backs of individuals. We don't want the revenue being as a result of children not coming into our library or adults saying we can't take advantage of the full services because we own fines and fees. So that's something we're doing, and I know both Linda and Tony have done it extremely well. Uh, We're doing it in Queens right now. And then balancing the various challenges that we have as far as coming out of the pandemic, making sure we have the proper equipment in place to protect our customers and our staff, and also responding some some of the capital issues that all of us face as well as far as improving our infrastructure. And that's part of management, and that's part of adjustment, as part of looking at your revenue, but not having the revenue on the backs of individuals. Now it's time for the 70th NBA All-Star Game. The best basketball players in the world are on the scene. It's all about supporting HBCUs. So now let's meet the team. Team Durant is presented to you by the illustrious, the incomparable, the baddest band in the land. The Grambling State University World Fame Tiger Marching Band. are roughly a hundred historically black colleges and universities in the U.S. And if you pool all their endowments together, the total is just $4 billion. To compare, the endowment of New York University alone is nearly $5 billion. This disparity in educational funding has real-world consequences, and it's starting to show in the aging infrastructure of HBCUs across the country. My next two guests are proposing an infusion of money to fix that with the bipartisan Ignite HBCU Excellence Act. I'm joined now by the bill's co-sponsor, Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, and HBCU graduate and Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Elsa. Great to be with you. 
Senator Warnock, I just want to start with you because you graduated from Morehouse College back in 1991. Did I get that right? You're telling my age. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how would you describe the current state of Morehouse's historic campus right now? Like, what do you think it needs at this moment? Well, Morehouse College, like HBCUs uh, all across our country, and we have nine of them in Georgia, has uh, since 1867, Morehouse, like a lot of our schools, has been punching above its weight. Uh, these schools have been doing so very much for so many people for so little for so long. Yeah. And um, while that is a story that in many ways is inspiring, uh, it is a, a kind of uh, story that says we're going to make a way out of no way, as we say in the black church. Um, yet I think it would be a mistake for us as a country to think that just because these schools have always punched above their weight, their weight, they should continue to do so, that somehow they will continue to thrive in a 21st century technological digital age without the much needed resources uh, that they deserve. And what uh, would you like specifically to see updated at Morehouse? Well, I mean, there was a recent survey of of some 79 HBCUs, and 70 of those HBCUs reported that more than 40% of their building space needed repair or complete replacement. Mm -hmm. And uh, Morehouse College is is no exception to that rule. And uh, this is why uh, I'm proud to co-sponsor the Ignite HBCU Excellence Act that will give schools... Uh, like Morehouse and Fort Valley down in Fort Valley, Georgia, and Savannah State and Spelman College, Clark Atlanta University, all of these schools an opportunity uh, to renovate their campuses, to uh, provide access to campus-wide, reliable, high-speed broadband. Can you imagine an institution of higher learning in the 21st century on the wrong side of the digital divide? That's unconscionable. I know. We we can fix it and we must. Let me ask you, Senator Coons, in addition to what Senator Warnock is describing, what do you see as the greatest needs of HBCUs overall right now? Well, Elsa, HBCUs across our country have long been uh, a special, a valued, and a critical pathway towards opportunity. Uh, one thing I've focused on is that roughly a third of all black STEM graduates in the entire United States have graduated from an HBCU. And as Reverend Warnock, my colleague in the Senate, was just referencing. Um, That's an astonishing accomplishment that they go on to such successful careers in science and technology, given the physical limitations of the campuses. Uh, In my home state, Delaware State University in Dover, Delaware, Mm -hmm. um, has an outstanding record. They've recently done been the lead research institution on different grants from NIH, from NSF, from NASA, Uh, And they're doing it with uh, under-resourced, outdated research equipment. Um, We are both so excited about the Ignite HBCU Excellence Act and the opportunity we have here to make a generational investment in facilities. If I may ask, let's talk about real money now. Because ideally, how much money do you think these HBCUs need from the federal government to make the kinds of improvements both of you are concerned about? Well, I, I think give me a number. It, it, well, you know, and, and, and even as you ask the question, I think it's important for people to know and to recognize that HBCUs aren't the uh, aren't the ones the only schools requesting aid from the federal government. And right. you, you shouldn't have to underscore that point, but in today's world, you do. 
they they need they need resources that are equitable to the input that they uh, the impact that they've been making for years. They are under resourced. They they get less than their share of federal support. But I ask about and we're money. We're trying to correct that. I ask about money because earlier this year, President Biden had proposed fifty five billion dollars in funding for HBCUs and other minority serving institutions. But then, a recent version of the three point five trillion dollar spending package only included about thirty billion for that purpose. And now it looks like that spending package is going to be brought down to satisfy moderate Democrats. So how optimistic are you that this spending on HBCUs will remain part of this overall spending package as Look, negotiations uh, continue? Uh, Elsa, as this package gets uh, slimmed down because of the more modest ambition of some of our colleagues, um, we are going to fight tirelessly to make sure uh, that there are robust resources for HBCU infrastructure in this bill. Uh, as it moves from maybe $3.5 trillion to $2 trillion over 10 years, the thing that we need to focus on is the policy priorities. And as Reverend Warnock just said, HBCUs have for decades and decades been a pathway towards opportunity, a, a critical investment in equity in our country. We don't mean to in any way disrespect or, or underemphasize their partner uh, institutions, uh, Hispanic-serving institutions, uh, tribal colleges and universities, which are also a part right. of this broader effort to make an investment in institutions um, that are historically majority-minority-serving institutions. Um, obviously, I would have supported President Biden's ambitious initial number. Uh, I think it would mm -hmm. have been um, a, a more significant and lasting investment. But we're in an environment where hanging on to this as a piece of this bill – um, something that we are all working very hard in our caucus but to do you get think, over the line is important. Do you, do you think that your Republican colleagues will lobby on behalf of this particular funding for HBCUs, given that a lot of them oppose the Democrats' overall proposal for this larger spending package? Well, at the end of the day, this uh, Build Back uh, Better bill it will be a Democratic bill. So we're not looking for Republican votes on this. But let me point out that we have gotten some bipartisan work done in the score on that score earlier uh this year we passed the US Innovation and Competition Act uh mm -hmm. which uh, leaned in on R&D the recognition that that we need to position our country to compete in the geopolitical space with a rising China we can't do that without all of our people and so uh we uh, made sure there was 750 million dollars in mm -hmm. that bill uh to shore up research activities at our HBCUs but there, there's a lot more work to do, and I guess what I'm saying is we'll, we will fight, uh, I certainly will as an HBCU graduate, to get as many resources as we can uh, for research, for infrastructure, in the reconciliation bill. Uh, but that's not the only bite at the apple we get, and we'll, we'll continue to build um, uh, on this effort. That's Democratic Senators Raphael Warnock of Georgia and Chris Coons of Delaware. Thanks very much to both of you. Thank, Thank you. The man called Chucky Africa. Several days ago came crippling news. Revolutionary Chucky Africa, the youngest of the Move Nine, and the last man released has died of cancer. Chuck born Charles Sims in West Philly, was a stalwart of the MOVE organization and a hard-punching warrior in prison. Back in the 80s, Chuck and Delbert joined the state's boxing program. 
and back when there was less than a dozen prisons. Such teams would visit other prisons for riveting boxing matches. The two men were so strong that they were considered a dynamic duo who delivered punishing body shots. Nor did Chuck confine his fighting to the ring as shown by an example of his explosive power when he was discussing a matter with a white shirt or ranking officer at Dallas in the 90s. Chuck took offense at a response he was given and punched the man so hard he was out cold when he hit the ground. His long spells in the hole while offering him an excellent opportunity to talk to other prisoners denied him access to fresh air and sunlight in any meaningful amounts. He studied history and politics and read voraciously. Indeed, he not long ago published an essay of his thoughts and observations drawn from decades in prison called From Darkness to Gray. In it, Chuck is astute, thoughtful, and to the point, Chuck, writing when in his, in his 30s, recorded the following thoughts. I began to go over my legal issues and strategy for the lawsuit in my mind. I really didn't see how the guards who assaulted me would be able to keep their story straight. I felt confident I would win. The facts of the matter are irrefutable. I have several eyewitnesses, and in addition, I have film footage. I subpoenaed showing my injured state when I arrived at a federal prison directly from Camp Hill. However, I am prepared for rumble because I have never met a cop or prison guard that ever admitted to their misdeeds. That's especially true when the issue is about brutality. The thoughts, the words of lifelong revolutionary Chuck Africa. Chucky lived to see his 65th summer of life after over 40 years in prison. Chucky Africa, freed in 2021 was a man of fire and ice who ended his letters to friends and family with the words love and rage. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Toxic, addictive, stalking division, putting profit before people and accountable to no one. Just some of the scathing accusations made about Facebook by one of its former employees. 
Frances Haugen has been testifying to a US Senate committee on protecting children online. Ms Haugen, who took internal documents with her when she left the company earlier this year, outlined why she decided to blow the whistle and go public. I joined Facebook because I think Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Congressional action is needed. They won't solve this crisis without your help. Frances Haugen told senators they needed to tackle Facebook in the way Congress had taken on the big tobacco companies. And the six-hour outage of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp on Monday showed how dependent the world had become on the social media giant. Yesterday we saw Facebook get taken off the internet. I don't know why it went down, but I know that for more than five hours, Facebook wasn't used to deepen divides, destabilise democracies and make young girls and women feel bad about their bodies. She had an eager and receptive audience among both Democratic and Republican senators. Richard Blumenthal said Facebook knew that its products were addictive like cigarettes. Big tech now faces that big tobacco, jaw-dropping moment of truth. It is documented proof that Facebook knows its products can be addictive and toxic to children. And it's not just that they made money, again. It's that they valued their profit more than the pain that they cause to children and their families. Facebook denies the accusations and says it spends vast amounts of money on safety. But Francis Haugen said most of that is spent on English language content, which is just a fraction of the posts on its platforms, meaning hate speech had circulated that may have sparked violence in Myanmar and Ethiopia. So could this be a turning point? Our Washington correspondent Gary O'Donoghue was watching the testimony. She certainly came across as very credible, and more to the point, she brought a a bundle of documents, didn't she, out of her time at Facebook, which... uh, uh, members of Congress have been looking at in detail, and indeed regulators have been looking at in detail and have been published in the Wall Street Journal. So this is not just someone saying, I don't like the culture very much, dot, dot, dot. This is someone with, they say, proof that Facebook was aware of the damage and the, the harm that some of its products uh, were causing. Having said that, Facebook's just put out a statement in which it questions the extent to which uh, Frances Haugen is a, a useful witness. They say she spent less than two years at the company. They are pushing back very hard. A very important figure at Facebook, of course, is Mark Zuckerberg, the founder, the chief executive officer, and his personal power was also highlighted in this testimony. Yeah, I mean, her view, Frances Haugen's view, is that uh, nothing happens without uh, Mr Zuckerberg say so. He has a controlling a voting share, of course, in, in Facebook. He owns, you know, enough of the stock to, to actually make the decisions. And uh, it was her view that, you know, he is in, in a sense responsible for what the company does, even if he doesn't have knowledge of every single choice that it makes. So that, again, ups the pressure on him in a week where things have gone pretty badly for Facebook. It had a, you know, 5% of its value wiped yesterday by the this peculiar outage uh, that took its services down for six hours. 
for me, this is a turning point. If it's a turning point, it's a turning point because of the nature of the bipartisan agreement that seems to be on display in Congress about something needing to be done. You had Republicans and Democrats who are normally at one another's throats uh, on this Senate committee who were essentially agreeing. Uh, the only tiny point of political disagreement was the question of whether or not uh, these companies should be broken up. That's something that's very much a view on the left of politics and not shared by, by those uh, Republicans on the right. Gary O'Donoghue in Washington. Well, in the hours that followed the US Senate committee, Facebook... Gary O'Donoghue in Washington. Well, in the hours that followed the US Senate committee, Facebook's head of content, Monica Bickert, spoke to the BBC's Christian Fraser. So what was her response to the claims that Facebook was putting profit over the safety of its users? We are not and we have not. And I want to clear up some of the mischaracterizations that we've seen today and also be clear that this was an employee who did not work on these issues and it's mischaracterized a lot of these stolen documents. I do work on these issues. I've been with the company for nine years. My background is in child safety and as a criminal prosecutor. And the amount of of thought and resources that this company has put into safety, including doing research to understand these issues, just underscores how much we do care about getting these very difficult issues right. So if your business is child safety, you will be concerned by your own research your own research that she has leaked that shows 32% of teenage girls surveyed said when they felt bad about their bodies and they looked at photos of other people on Instagram, it made them feel worse. I'm concerned when any teen has a bad experience on Instagram. And, and I know that I speak for the hundreds of people who work on child safety um, policies and enforcement and resources at our company. But I want to be clear that that is not what these stolen documents say. Uh, what they say instead is that of the small number, and this is a, it's a small survey, but of the 40 Instagram users who were teens who said that they do struggle with mental health issues, everything from anxiety to body image to self-harm, both boys and girls on all 12 issues, the majority of boys and girls said that Instagram either made things better for them or didn't have a material impact. Facebook's head of content, Monica Bickert. Seattle is about 100 miles south of the Canadian border on the west coast of the United States. It is a lush, evergreen city lying between Puget Sound and Lake Washington with abundant parklands and surrounded by towering mountains and forests. King County Council member Germay Zahalai says thousands of these flyers were sent by King County Council member Kathy Lambert to voters in her jurisdiction, District 3. It's really disappointing to see that one of my colleagues is pulling childish stunts like photoshopping my face onto a smear campaign flyer in a race that I'm not even in. The flyers paint Zahalai as a puppeteer, controlling Lambert's opponent, Sarah Perry. She just uh, decides to create a puppet uh, out of the woman. It, I, yeah, I don't have, I don't have any understanding of women that do that to other women. Kathy Lambert says the flyers are designed to highlight the differences between the two candidates. Marketing is getting things done in as few words as possible. And so a visual of a marionette is a visual that people understand that they may not be making their own decisions. 
Many leaders in the county have joined Perry and Zahalai calling the flyers offensive. Lambert says that was not her intention. I'm sorry that they found it offensive. Um, that was not the intent. The intent was to say that there is a difference between Seattle's views on how we should behave and how we should keep safe. Zahalai argues while others on the county council besides him have endorsed Perry, he believes his photo was included on the flyer because of his race. It's not a new strategy to point to the only black elected official with a foreign sounding name to uh, fear monger. What would you say to that? Preposterous. Um, I do a lot of work in Africa, so um, if I had something against him because of his color, I wouldn't be doing the work that I do in Africa. District 3 will be a close race. Lambert pulling in 40% of the primary vote and Perry 36%. Perry believes the flyers misled voters, claiming she and Zahalai are socialists. I have never identified as a socialist. Uh, and and um, so I don't I just have no idea where she where she got that. I'm not a socialist. And it's also another level of offensive to assume that a woman politician is going to be controlled by a male politician. Councilmember Zahalai says he has spoken to Councilmember Lambert and expressed his disappointment about the flyer. He said she did not apologize. Instead, she expressed her disappointment that Zahalai had endorsed her political opponent. In Issaquah, Callie Greenberg, King 5 News. In other news tonight, a racist rant in Mount Laurel that went viral on social media has resulted in more charges. Edward Matthews was seen harassing his neighbor in this video from over the summer. Yeah, now investigators saying this was just one of a long pattern of threatening behavior by the suspect. Well, there are new charges tonight against a New Jersey man whose racist tirade sparked protests, violence and complaints against police officers. That's right. Edward Matthews, prosecutors say, began to terrorize his neighbors long before the video of that tirade went viral. The 45-year-old was charged today with bias intimidation and harassment stemming from an incident that happened months before this video was taken. In total, he is now facing 22 charges. Action News reporter Dan Cuellar is live in Mount Laurel tonight with the full story. Dan. Rick and Christie, not only did authorities level more charges against Edward Matthews, but four others were charged as well for throwing stuff at him and police as they tried to arrest him. Further, an investigation shows that police could have done a better job at responding to numerous complaints. Police in riot gear appeared at the Essex Place condominiums after a large protest broke out outside 45-year-old Edward Matthews' home. This after a video went viral of him hurling the N-word multiple times at his neighbors. Matthews later tried to apologize in an interview with Action News. I not apologize enough. I was drunk. I was out of line. There were cheers as police finally arrested Matthews, but police struggled to get him into a car due to civil unrest and people hurling stuff at them and Matthews. It was a difficult situation to 
extract him, but unfortunately some in the crowd made it much more dangerous for everybody. Today, four people were charged with, among other things, discharging pepper spray at police and Matthews and throwing objects and spitting on them. But today, Matthews, who has been in jail since July for bias intimidation of his neighbors, faced other charges. This time, after a handwriting analysis by the FBI revealed that a threatening note left on a neighbor's vehicle had been written by him. The victim, who wanted us to identify her only by her last name of Gibbons, says he apparently wrote the note after successfully running one of her friends out of the neighborhood. I think he wrote on the note with something like, one down, few to go, uh, something along the lines like, uh, we got your friend Cookie. That was her nickname. The Burlington County Prosecutor's Office also found that while there was no evidence of favoritism shown towards Matthews, police could have done a better job of handling numerous complaints against him with a broader perspective on the community than on a case-by-case -case basis. They should have. I've always said that. Mm -hmm. I've always said that. Today, Gibbons, along with the Condominium Association, were delighted to hear news that Matthews just sold his condo and will not be coming back. And we're obviously happy he's not moving back into the community. Matthews faces other legal troubles ahead. The prosecutor announced today that the charges against him, 22 in all, are pending presentation to a grand jury for possible indictment. Live here in Mount Laurel, I'm Dan Coyar, Action News at 10 on PHL 17. All right, Chris Jim, thank you. Mama, I got It happened 100 years ago today. A black teenager was lynched and shot to death in Chatham County, an act carried out by an angry mob. The story was told in local newspapers at the time. WRL's Adam Owens shows us how it was told again today in remembrance ceremonies. It is a dark moment in Chatham County history. This gathering is intended to bring it to light. These are times, God, we had in the past, and these are times that are unnamed. For years, Cheryl Taylor did not know the story, and it is part of her family story. I came across this by complete accident, doing my family tree. She is the great-niece of Eugene Daniel. In 1921, he was 16 years old. A white girl says she woke to a man standing in her bedroom. Daniel was a suspect. The case never saw a courtroom. A mob took Daniel from his jail cell in Pittsburgh, lynched him, and shot him to death. Mike Robertson is the current Chatham County Sheriff. No person should go through the terror, the fear, and the injustice of being kidnapped and killed by a vigilante mob. The story that had never been told in my family, a story that from generation to generation, never got passed down by anyone. That is why Taylor made the trip from her home in New Jersey to Apex, where Daniel is buried. Trey Walk is with the Equal Justice Initiative. We think it's important to tell the truth about that history that's uh, been silenced for so long. The initiative supports remembrance projects like this one. There was no opportunity to truly reckon with what happened to them. I think it's really important that we finally give him some form of justice um, that he didn't get in his lifetime. Now that she knows the story, it is important to Taylor. Others know it as well. It means a lot to me. Adam Owens.
WRAL News. So glad his story is being told. Here's some more history for you. None in the mob were held accountable. Chatham County Commissioner Karen Howard says she plans to introduce a resolution apologizing for Daniel's death on behalf of the Chatham County. Uh, that is expected to happen on Monday at a meeting. As your body grows Attention, angry American parents, your children, and the rest of the country are watching. Scenes like this outside a school board meeting in Tennessee last month, or this one in Idaho, where anti-mask protesters caused local officials to cancel their meeting due to safety concerns, triggered an unusual emergency request for federal assistance to stop violence against public school children, board members, and local educators. In a letter to President Biden, the National School Board Association appealed for help. These threats to school board members is uh, horrible. They're doing their jobs. The board compared the angry eruptions to domestic terrorism and hate crimes. It isn't clear what the feds can actually do about the basic lack of respect and civility plaguing communities right now. Show some respect. The spate of physical attacks on flight attendants enforcing mask rules is just another example of self-righteous adults behaving badly. It seems the anxiety caused by the pandemic has made it even harder for many of our fellow Americans to listen to each other and to forget how to have a civil conversation about difficult issues. At least eight states have enacted legal bans on teachers even discussing theories regarding race-based privilege. Racial equity is one of the most explosive topics at school board gatherings. It is dangerous to our children when the parents themselves are the school bullies. It poses a threat to the very foundational levels of our democracy, basic education. Not every act needs to be political. Putting a mask on your child amidst the pandemic is just practical. Avoiding masks is not in the Bible, but taking care of others is. As this Tennessee dad explained to his kindergartner. She went to school and was one of just a few kids in her class wearing a mask, which made her ask me why she had to. My answer was because we want to take care of other people. She's five years old, but she understood that concept. And it's disappointing that more adults around here can't seem to grasp it. Perhaps the children could teach us a thing or two about civic duty. Let's turn to Viola Garcia. She is the president of the National School Board Association. Uh, Viola, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start with that letter to the Biden administration. Did you ever think you would have to ask for help from the FBI to keep school board meetings safe? No, the, no the, but the threats, uh, at least thank you for having me. The threats and the violence um, that school board members and education leaders are receiving, we believe have to stop. It's okay to disagree. Um, we have always had disagreements. We're open to disagreements uh, school, at school board meetings. Uh, but these are difficult conversations we're having and disagreements cannot rise to the level of threats and harassment that you've uh, shared on the videos uh, a bit ago. So given this widespread uh, nature of conflicts and chaos that we're seeing, we felt it was important for the federal government to get involved to protect 
our education leaders, uh, but especially our students uh, as, that, we're, that, that are experiencing this as well. And speaking of the students, I mean, we just watched those threats and that violence unfold in that package. How does that impact children in school? Well, it does. I think that uh, last clip with the with the father expressing uh, his concern uh, for others and sharing that with his daughter was very explicit. So parents are a critical part. We want to make this clear. Parents are a very critical part of our schools and our communities, and their voices must be heard. School board members want to hear from parents when it comes to decisions that we are making about their children's education and safety. That's the first thing that we want to clarify. But we need to get back to the issues as well uh, that matter for a child's education. Uh, this is uh, interrupting uh, the chaos that is being created. It's interrupting uh, the normal work of uh, school boards and school districts. Uh, so those things involve uh, getting good teachers, uh, support for students with disabilities and others with needs, and assuring that all students have internet access in their homes. There's so many needs uh, uh, that have been exacerbated or that we have seen have been exacerbated during this pandemic. Uh, and school boards are focused or need to be focused on those issues um, that, that relate to students, directly uh, to students. Where are you seeing the most incidents of violence and threats over coronavirus safety protocols? Well, I think that you demonstrated, your videos demonstrated some of those uh, locations. Uh, several school boards across the country are experiencing these disruptions. They're affecting, as I said, the educational service and school board governance. Uh, but these incidents are beyond random acts. And that is one of the other reasons that we uh, wrote the letter to the president. What we are seeing is a pattern of threats and violence occurring across state lines and via online platforms, which is why we need the federal government's assistance. Talk to us about how critical race theory is adding to these clashes. Well, that's, that's one of those misconceptions. Um, critical race theory really is a part of the curriculum in law school. Uh, there is not a part of a critical race theory uh, that uh, public school districts uh, who serve students in early childhood through grade 12 uh, are, are, are teaching. I think that misinformation is a large part of what is happening. Uh, I think that that has been conflated with some of the efforts across the country uh, related to the pandemic uh, that have really shown us or demonstrated uh, some of the inequalities uh, within the systems across the nation. And so what school board members across the country are attempting to do is to demonstrate that uh, we want to serve all students uh, and we want to serve them equitably so that they each have the opportunity to grow and expand uh, in every way. And so that is uh, not an aspect uh, of, of the work that is related to critical race theory, as I said, that uh, is in a curriculum at law school, at colleges and universities and law programs. Uh, and so I think that in large part is uh, misinformation uh, that is being shared um, outside now, of school districts. Now you wanna serve students safely. Uh, what do you believe the Biden administration can do to help protect teachers and other school officials? 
Well, we know that the White House and the Department of Education are focused on these issues. We've been in communication them, with them for a number of weeks, but we think it's important to, get, to have greater, greater federal focus on these incidents because of the coordinated effort that they can bring to this uh, with uh, state and local law enforcement, especially when it comes to monitoring these threats that we know are statewide and are uh, uh, coordinated efforts across the country. Viola Garcia, thank you. Thank you. White supremacy is the sickness. A COVID-19 vaccine for younger children could be available within weeks. Pfizer and BioNTech announced today that they're asking federal regulators to authorize their vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. The companies say kids would need two injections of the shot three weeks apart, but at a lower dosage than adolescents and adults. For some parents, that's welcome news. But others have been concerned about the safety of vaccines for their kids and possible mandates. Joining me now to talk about the science and the risks and rewards is Wall Street Journal health business editor Jonathan Rockoff. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for being here. Hi, Anne-Marie. Great to see you. So, Jonathan, can you tell us about the timeline going forward now that Pfizer has submitted to the FDA approval? How soon could it be before we see these going out to market? It could just be a couple of weeks, actually, or at least a matter of weeks. We're talking between Halloween and Thanksgiving. So, you know, there's this whole process that companies have to go through to get their drugs and vaccines cleared by the regulators so that people can start taking them. And we've seen this before with um, all the COVID vaccines that have hit the market and that we're getting in our arms. Pfizer today filed the formal request with the Food and Drug Administration to have that vaccine authorized for 5 to 11-year-olds. What's next up is the FDA staff are going to review that application. And what they do is they go into the data from the clinical trial and actually take a look at it and see if it supports, as the company says it does, that the vaccine works safely in 5 to 11-year-olds. And then the FDA staff will send this data to a group of outside experts, people who are at the top of their fields in vaccines and other health areas. And the experts will review what the FDA staff found and then give a recommendation to the agency about what it should do. For instance, should it authorize the vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds? And then after all that is said and done, then the FDA actually issues their own decision. Let's talk about the risk of COVID for kids. We did see during the Delta variant that the number of hospitalizations for children went up. Can you tell us a little bit more about the overall risks at this stage in the pandemic? The risks for severe COVID in kids is relatively low, which is great news. It's not as high as it is in the elderly, for instance, who are really vulnerable, especially vulnerable to severe disease if they get infected. But that's not all we should be looking at according to public health and health experts, because kids, even if they have a mild case of COVID, they can still transmit it to other kids, to adults, to grandparents, family members. And from a public health perspective, that's a real problem, especially with kids going back to school And so the reasons why doctors and other health authorities argue for kids getting vaccinated is not only to protect the kids themselves, but to protect their loved ones and the communities around them. But all that said, the relative risk for the kids of a severe case of COVID is low. 
Now, this is really good news for a lot of parents who have been waiting for a vaccine for their kids. What are you hearing from them about the risk assessments they're making over whether to get their children inoculated or not and what their major concerns are right now? I think it's looking a lot like what it has looked like for adults who were trying to decide whether to get vaccinated themselves. So we, you know, we don't know exactly what people are going to do, but there's been some surveys out there and it's found that a third of parents are going to jump on the opportunity to get their young kids vaccinated as soon as, as they can. But there's a much larger percentage of parents who aren't going to do it immediately. A chunk of those are parents who want to wait and see. They're just a little bit hesitant, concerned about safety for understandable reasons, and just want to sit back and wait and see how things are looking before they get their kids vaccinated. And then there's a group of parents who don't want to get their kids vaccinated at all. What else have we learned about potential side effects? So one of the issues that we've seen arise with the messenger RNA vaccines like Pfizer's is this rare but still significant risk of an inflammatory heart condition called myocarditis. Usually this doesn't happen And when it does, it resolves fairly quickly, but in some cases it can be serious. And we've seen it more in people with younger ages and especially in younger males. And uh, just today, Norway um, restricted use of the Moderna vaccine, which is a messenger RNA vaccine to certain age groups because of myocarditis. Now, the Pfizer study assessing its vaccine in the 5 to 11-year-olds didn't have any cases of myocarditis. So the risk is probably low based on the study results, but we know that studies aren't comprehensive and that they don't necessarily tell us what's going to happen in the real world because studies are conducted under specific conditions, and it's only a certain number of people. So if we have a rare event like myocarditis, it might not get picked up in a study of just a few thousand people. Well, we've seen a patchwork of school policies when it comes to masking and vaccine guidance. How might approval of a vaccine for younger kids potentially influence those conversations? Might we potentially see more vaccine requirements in schools? Yeah, I think one of the things we have to keep an eye on is how schools process the authorization of a vaccine in 5 to 11-year-olds. Remember, we've already seen the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine authorized for 12 to 18-year-olds. So there's a lot of kids in school who have already gotten it. I think one of the issues is whether the vaccine is authorized, which is technically one thing, or whether it's approved, which is another. All these vaccines because we're in a pandemic and we want to get them to people as quickly as we can, have been authorized by the FDA. That's a faster, speedier review than the full approval that vaccines and drugs normally get from the FDA. Now, the FDA says that they're applying the same high standards that they use to assess drugs and vaccines for an approval to the authorization process, but legally it's different. And it might be that a lot of schools are going to hold off before making a decision on whether they're going to require a vaccine for kids for an actual approval from the FDA rather than authorization. Once again, uh, as probably some people on the line know by now, there are are 18 
NBA NBA players. I don't know if they were former or not. Uh, once again, uh, attempting to practice the criminal activity of wealthy white people, which is fraud, things like fraud, you know, that sort of thing. And I think I brought it up before on, 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 on workplace racism. Uh, and uh, I mean, you, you, you're attempting to do this at, as though white people are not paying attention <laughs> to you. Uh, and, you know, so the, the punishment can be severe, I, I, would, I would imagine. The feds are accusing 18 former NBA players of scamming the league out of millions of dollars. Federal prosecutors say these former players submitted false insurance claims to get massive payouts on medical and dental procedures that they never got. The details are crazy. 19 people charged with conspiracy to commit health care fraud and wire fraud. One of them, a former player's wife. They say the defendant submitted nearly $4 million in false claims and were paid out about $2.5 million. Some of the bigger names in the case, Glenn Big Baby Davis, he won a title with the Celtics, and the former Coney Island High School sensation Sebastian Telfair, and Darius Miles, he was the third overall pick in the 2000 draft. They're all caught up in this. Prosecutors say part of the reason they got caught, they were sloppy, very sloppy. One example, they say Greg Smith, who played for the Rockets, submitted a claim for $48,000 for IVs and a root canal, some crowns, all in Beverly Hills. The problem was... He wasn't even in California the day of the procedure. He was in Taiwan playing ball. The feds say they have the travel records, the emails, and publicly available box scores to prove it. And there's more. CNBC's Valerie Castro has it. This, this list of stuff they did is, I mean, it's the prosecutor stuff, innocent until proven guilty, but wow. It seems endless, Chef. Yeah. And there was an alleged ringleader of this whole scheme who was named at the very top of the indictment. Terrence Williams, who played on multiple teams, including the New Jersey Nets, is accused of directing other former players in this fraud, and he allegedly benefited from their payouts. The grand jury indictment filed in the Southern District of New York alleges Williams recruited other plan participants to defraud the plan by offering to supply them with false invoices to support their false and fraudulent claims to the plan in exchange for the payment of kickbacks to Williams. It goes on to say many of the defendants paid Williams kickbacks totaling at least approximately $230,000. Federal prosecutors say former players submitted false claims for chiropractic, dental and wellness services ranging from 65000 to as much as $420,000. Authorities say evidence like travel records and GPS data put them far from the supposed provider on the date they claimed to be there. Others submitted identical claims on the same dates that also raised suspicion along with typos and forms that were not on official letterhead. Three of the charged defendants, Ronald Glenn Davis, Anthony Roten, and Anthony Allen, purportedly had root canals on the same 16th on April 30, 2016, and crowns on the same 16th on May 11, 2016. Williams is also accused of impersonating a health plan employee to intimidate another player when he wouldn't pay the kickback. And Shep, as of this hour, NBC News is still trying to reach the players and their attorneys, but haven't received any comment just yet. One of the accused players, Sebastian Telfair, who you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. he has already pleaded not guilty in federal court. All right. This is just getting started. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting. Digger! <laughs>
Today's body camera video is shedding more light on how Minneapolis police responded during the unrest following George Floyd's murder. The video shows officers firing less lethal rounds at Jaleel Stallings, a St. Paul veteran who then fired back at the police. Stallings was acquitted of attempted murder after testifying that he was shooting in self-defense. David Schumann walks us through it all. On May 30th, 2020, five days after George Floyd was killed, a group of Minneapolis police officers was patrolling Lake Street and enforcing curfew with rubber bullets. Let them have it, boys. Let them have it. Right there. Get him, get him, get him. Hit him, hit him. In body camera footage from the night, the officers expressed disdain for protesters and appear enthusiastic about going after them. Gotcha. This officer's congratulated after his shot. You guys are out hunting people now, and it's just a nice change of tempo. Yep, agreed. These people. In another clip, an officer impersonates the Looney Tunes character, Elmer Fudd. Be very, very quiet. <laughs> Officers can be seen popping tires. All this video was released by Jaleel Stallings' attorney. The officers shot rubber bullets at Stallings that night, and Stallings, who had a gun he was permitted to carry, fired back three quick shots. Stallings went to the ground once officers started rushing at him, and they beat him for about 30 seconds. He was acquitted last month of eight criminal charges against him, including second-degree attempted murder. About this body camera video, all Stallings' attorney had to say was the evidence speaks for itself. An MPD spokesperson said he was unable to comment due to an ongoing internal investigation. All right, David, thank you. Context of white supremacy. It had been a minute since I'd even heard Elmer Fudd uh, to make a comparison or pick out like, what is he talking about? Oh, yes. Hmm. Weekly compensatory call-in, dial-in if you have thoughts, observations, counter-racist suggestions. The number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again. 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. This broadcast not for spectators. A few things to share before we get started. Uh, one, we should be here on... Monday, uh, we should have a white man. Uh, he just wrote a book, American Atrocity. Uh, it is all about lynchings. You heard about uh, Eugene Daniel right there in Chatham, North Carolina. Uh, he should be here on Monday. His book is all about the history of lynchings and white terrorism uh, in this part of the world uh, and maybe rethinking how we analyze all of that. Uh, I think it is appropriate given all of the white terrorism that we're watching every day right now in great abundance, uh, whether you want to talk about the terrorism from January 6th 
what you heard right there, the terrorizing the family in Virginia where they say they can't do anything about it, terrorizing the school officials about masks. Take your pick. White people running amok across the land. But he should be here on Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll discuss his book in the current context of white supremacy racism. Always try to take advantage of opportunities to question a suspected racist. Actually, we might have two white people for the upcoming week. Uh, so that's Monday, American Atrocity, that book. On Wednesday, we might have a different white person, white woman, uh, here in Seattle. Uh, she is doing well, part of a, like, virtual. I guess before the Rona, this would have been, like, some sort of Green Lake. Uh, I love Green Lake. I've talked about Green Lake frequently, especially this past summer, uh, going being able to go and hang out there daily. Uh, I was close today. I didn't go because it was a little cloudy, a little rainy today, but I uh, love the whole Green Lake area. It's beautiful. No black people live there, but it is an amazing park. And if there were no system of white supremacy or if I was classified as white or maybe if I was classified as some other race, if I was pale enough, maybe I would own property in Green Lake. But until that day comes, I was hanging out at the park. I was about to leave to go ho- uh, back to my house, residence, and I see this flyer. They have this virtual group. They're reading about racism, white people that live in Green Lake. I guess that's what they do in their spare time, go kick it at the lake and chat about, you know, random books or what have you. So they were spending two weeks doing this discussion. And uh, June, I have to get her last name again. It's something peculiar. But she, her book or her writings, that was going to be uh, like the focus of their two-week virtual discussion, this white community in Green Lake. So she should be with us on Wednesday. I was supposed to get a copy of the book that they were talking about, but then it didn't arrive. U.S. Post Office, my mail's been tampered with. Who knows? Lots of terrorism this year. But that's Wednesday, uh, tentative. We shall see. But Monday, that's pretty bang. I think we pretty much got that one. You can ink that Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The book, again, American Atrocity, all about lynching. Eugene Daniels. That said, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. Hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, It's also linked, as well as our Cash App and Venmo. Cash App, the address cash.app forward slash the cows enormous thanks to all the folks who have invested supported us a dozen years if i'm alive white terrorists do not get me before february it'll be 13 years if anything that means we have failed for 13 years to solve the problem haven't even made a dent metaphor also you can hit the wish list Amazon.com under Gusty Renegade. I hadn't even been sharing my wish list because my mail had been tampered with. Do not think Gusty forgot. We did that whole program last year where I talked about a white man suspected race soldier accusing Gus of tampering, looting mailboxes in South Seattle to basically walk one year away and now have my mail tampered with like, where is that white man when you need him? Anywho, I think we are moving forward on that. I had at least gotten the last few bits of mail. I think 
There's nothing that I'm aware of that I've missed totally. Uh, you can hit the wish list, Amazon.com. For getting all the mail stuff, the number one item on my wish list is for Ron Lack's book, Henrietta Lack's The Untold Story. A listener shared that book with me a month ago, we'll say. Reading, more important, watching television. So he shared it maybe a month or so ago. And I tried to reach out to Mr. Lack, see if we could have him as a guest on the program. It is still white guests only. What I say for our coming guest this week. The only reason was because the book club, we read Rebecca Skloot's Henrietta Lack's The Untold Story. Now, just this year, uh, Harriet A. Washington, she did like a two-hour talk on C-SPAN. Within that, she spent about 10 minutes talking about her critiques of Rebecca Skloot and how she wanted to write about Henrietta Lacks, but she was prohibited, which is the same thing she talks about at the beginning of Medical Apartheid. Apparently, no one obstructed white woman Rebecca Skloot from writing about all this, and she's not a doctor either. Anyway, so I saw that, like, oh, Ron Lacks is, is writing about his grandmother as it should be. Like, man, we should have him on the program, plus people who followed the cows. We read Henrietta Lacks. It gets mentioned all the time. Even she's been mentioned regularly this year. Of course, we have to follow to see if we can get him on the program. First, I don't hear back from him. I don't think about it. But sometimes I say you'll get just goofy clues. Well, I shouldn't say goofy. That's disparaging. You'll get peculiar clues. I'll say it that way. From the creator, if you're paying attention. That's how I interpret it. I am on the train. I look over. A suspected racist white woman. She's reading. I look to see what she's reading. She's reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. I said, now, this was pretty close to that. I had already emailed Ron Lacks. I verbally, I said, oh, my goodness. Ron Lacks, her grandson, wrote a book. And she looked up, what? said, her grandson, he just published a book about her, Ron Lacks. She said, oh, my gosh, I love this book. I love this book. And I make a mental note like, I can see why. Anyone who read that book with us, I can see why a white person would love the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. I don't think you can read that book and have a very high opinion of black people, any of them. And I think her grandson said the same thing. Coming to the cows. Anyway, all of that to say, that's the number one item on my wish list is Ron Lacks, the Kindle version. That way I don't have to worry about my mailbox being looted. Uh, I can just bam, download, and away we go, reading more important than watching television and external sound cards. 2021 metaphor has been James Buster Douglas. Gus T has been Mike Tyson. I can't even find my mouthpiece. Not that I expected to be triumphant this year, but I mean, wow. Throwing the towel. Oh, get my fight metaphor in for fight night. I know we'll have nobody to talk today because everyone is prepping for Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury 3, brain damage galore. They'll root for the colored fella, I guess. Brain damage, all of that. Ron Lack's book is number one on the guest or on the wish list. And then number two, external sound cards. I thought I was being cool. They have all these Amazon lockers here in Seattle that you can use. Uh, and have Amazon packages delivered right at Whole Foods and all over the place. I'm at Whole Foods regularly. That's right next to where I live. And can't get wish list items sent to an Amazon hub 
locker. And then they were real <laughs> foul about informing me about all of this. Like, woof, it has been a treacherous terrorism, white terrorism filled year, all the way down to the conclusion. Don't think 2022 will be any better. Let's see. Things that uh, stood out from the audio segments, I'll just mention a few and try and get to the callers who are not watching all of the brain damage in Las Vegas. They always have those fights in Las Vegas, like anything goes. You can see all kinds of barbarism and drugs are legal, prostitution is legal. Sin City, they call it, metaphor, appropriate. Uh, let's see, New York City, they eliminated late fees, I guess at some of the libraries. Uh, they talked about disparities between non-white people and particularly the children. I thought that was heinous. Uh, they said, I think it was 65% of the people that were being impacted by all these fees were under 18. Like that is a disgrace. I am all about responsibility and you know, teaching children about deadlines and being timely about things. I mean, that is important, being responsible when you borrow uh, anything. But, I mean, wow. Talk about discouraging someone to read. That is, the, that is I would say, a part of the niggerization process right there. Being obstructed. And then you put that piece of information with the piece of data that we got from Seattle Public Radio, I believe in 2018, may have been 2019, I'll double check, but in Seattle specifically, they had to switch their whole policy about ejecting people from the library because they said, man, it's disproportionately non-white people, and they don't have a whole lot of black people in Seattle. They said with children, though, specifically, it was exclusively black children, not black and brown children, not people of ch children of color. They said it was exclusively like 100% of the children that they boot out of the library, you're ejected, no reading for you, were black. So just taking those two bits of information, that is your niggerization process. Not black people are lazy because we hear that all the time, not just from Chris Rock. We've had Cal's guests come on the program and triumphantly conclude that's the problem black people are lazy not we have racist teachers and are made to read i don't know huckleberry finn the hate you give take your pick content that you might not be too interested in reading or rebecca scoop the immortal life of henrietta Lacks. they force you to read that or they kick you out of the library or you just get all these library fees and you don't have the same amount of nickels as someone classified as white in a system of white supremacy or all three. But they're doing away with library fees in New York. Again, the best plantation in this part of the world, they did that like a while ago. They probably still kick a lot of black people out of the library though. Uh, let's see. When speaking of colleges, universities, they had the segment about the Historically Black Colleges and Universities, HBCUs, as they call them. Uh, these are white people's institutions. I think that's so important to remind people of. Like, many of them are named explicitly after white people, uh, like, just like everything else on the plantation. And they still talk about looting. I thought it was so neglectful. Gusty Renegade, I don't have monstrous staff and endowments and all the rest of that. I know. 
they steal from HBCUs. In fact, I know that because NPR knows that. That's why I heard that. But they reported this widely, where when it comes to federal, federal allocation of funds, routinely HBCUs do not get what they are supposed to get. They did a whole big report about this, how consistent underfunding, that's a part of why they have dilapidated infrastructure now. Not the total, but that's a part of it. And it was a substantial amount of theft. Memory's not bad on that one at all, but you want to talk about endowments, just take and try to keep things in pattern, everything in context, right? So last week we talked about Dr. Robert Anderson at the University of Michigan, hail to the victors. He molested, raped a thousand people, allegedly, some of them underage, I'm sure, probably many of them, and was never charged with anything all of this is only being reported publicly now after he's been deceased for many years. The University of Michigan was complicit in concealing his crimes that went on for decades. The University of Michigan has a $12 billion endowment. You heard the all, they didn't say one or two or Spelman or all of the Negro schools many of them named after whites, they have less than $5 billion in endowments, just the University of Michigan, $12 billion endowment to help protect Dr. Robert Anderson, accused child molester. They said the greatest child molester in history or excuse me, not child molester, but sexual abuser. That's the way they described him last week. You got a $12 billion endowment. You can do a lot of protecting. Hail to the victors. Let's see. Uh, next, uh, they had the segment, Some Other Race. Explosive category, metaphor, everybody wants to join some other race, deliberate confusion. And then they add to that that it seems that a substantial number of the folks who are in the some other race are so-called Hispanic. Now, they even say within that that's not a racial classification, which is the same thing I, Mr. Fuller, many, many folks using logic have said that's not a racial classification. So you're, you're just adding more confusion on all this now. White non-white, make things very simple, exact, accurate. Some, and then put that on an official government form, some other race, and say that that's a category. Confusion, total chaos, let's see. And they had the metaphor red flag there too. They talked about the lynching. That's uh, Monday, the program, uh, American Atrocity. They talked about the lynching. I'm not uh, a supporter of this. This could go on for decades, centuries, really. With I mean, we don't even have an accurate count on how many black people, non-white people in total, are victims of lynchings. How many, like, apology tours and statues and museums? They got a whole lynching museum. How many of those are we going to erect? And for what end? 
I mean, is it going to be like all black construction crews that go out and put up all these lynching monuments and apologies and, you know, all the rest of it to what end? I'm just not a fan. Like, that's great if, you know, people didn't know about this instance and now they know about what happened to Eugene Daniel and, you know, disgrace once again. And yes, everybody in Chatham County is very sorry about this. And maybe the entire North Carolina state is very sorry about this and it'll never happen again. And all the rest of it would be. I don't think so, but I mean, I'm just not a fan of this. Uh, like I said, they can do it. It just gives an opportunity for white refinement or white people to come out. And then they do. They're so tacky. It doesn't get any better than tacky. A lot of times there'll be some sort of forced uh, contrition where you have to forgive white people or their great grandchildren or whatever for what they did. They still don't come out and identify everybody who was wrong in all of this. And then we got to get together and they didn't give us kumbaya. They gave us when the saints go marching in. That is just as tacky as Amazing Grace and all the rest of it that they get together. Uh, we shall overcome like all of that. I don't want to get together and sing anything about white supremacy. Are you putting like, hey, let's put a billion dollar endowment at North Carolina A&T or Winston-Salem State or pick the HBCU billion dollar endowment and we'll call it the Eugene Daniel Fund. No, we're not going to. You just got an empty apology. And we'll go put some acorns on his grave site for Mr. Day. He probably doesn't even have a grave site. You don't do that for lynching victims, right? All of that is a waste of time, in my opinion. No, just if the Daniel family, if they want to do recognition, that's totally acceptable. Not talking about that. I'm just talking about white people making a big show display about all of this. Let's see. Last thing, uh, at least for the time being, last thing. I'll get in the approval of the vaccine for children. I don't have offspring. Wow, there is a lot to consider if you are an attempted parent uh, in processing all of that. And I mean, they were saying that this could be available like soon before the end of the year. And then with the mandates and all the rest of it, wow, that is a lot to discuss. Do your research. And I think that's another one. I would probably tell if I did have offspring, depending on their age and all that, but it would probably be the same thing. Don't discuss vaccine status with your classmates, because I could see where I've already seen many of these students being encouraged by their racist parents, and then they come in and they're part of the disturbance and all the rest of it like that's not even anything to talk about, much less the some of the teachers or what have you overhear what you have to say. I would probably tell them that too, but do your research for uh, their parents out there having to consider if you're going to uh, have your offspring vaccinated, or maybe you're excited about that. Bravo, right on. Do your research. Make sound choices as best you can. Uh, I already said commentary about Elmer Fudd. I had been years since I'd heard Elmer Fudd's name even mentioned. And even, I guess I, I will say, I mean, I would say that's a racist joke. It doesn't have the classic punchline, but I mean, that is exactly what Neely Fuller Jr., that is precisely what he talks about. Practicing white supremacy, racism, mistreating non-white people, especially black people, and having fun doing so now. That's what you lose. I mean, that is exactly like people should like play that for Mr. Fuller. Ask him, did he see that when he does talk to him next time? Like, hey, hunting. He would talk about to go out and do the box chase, right? 
Remember when they shot the uh, lion on safari? Old Leo, what was that? I think it was like 2015, they shot old Leo the lion. They get excited about that. Chase, yes. We are hunting Negras. They said activists, but I mean, same thing, really. And they got the video. This is one. I didn't mean to see it, but I mean, I was trying to get the audio uh, where they show they had the victim. He had his concealed carry permit where another example of black people with guns, white people know how to diffuse, neutralize any black people. Or you can put that plural over and over and over easily. The evidence shows that clearly. But so you have a black person, concealed carry, all that. He has his firearm legally. They go. He's on the ground like prone. <clears throat> no threat at all. He's tossed his gun down. He's on the ground on his belly. They come and stomp on him, beat him. I mean, it's total like, this is what I would expect from gang members. They want to talk about like the Bloods and the Crips and all that. This looks like total gang activity. No professional enforcement officials and, oh, let's handcuff him and read it. We are going to beat this coon down till we get tired of what I mean, stomping on his head and everything. It's, what does it did that clip right there? What does it mean to be classified as white? And do and do they do this when the white people go protesting? Man, they should be saying that clearly. White people, domestic terrorism at these schools, white people, white people. It's not Americans, it's not all of us, it's white people. But do they do that then? Like, man, we are going hunting. Go up here to the school board and act a fool today if you want to. Maybe I missed those videos. The number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, for this broadcast, if we could refrain from using metaphors, that would be appreciated. There were a number of them this week. They said uh, the HBCUs were punching above their weight. I don't know what that means. I think if I was guessing, which I don't like to do, if it means doing more than you actually have the resources to do somehow, but you wouldn't have dilapidated infrastructure if that was the case. That's, I don't know what that means. Uh, and then they had with the uh, some other race, they said, hey, it's a red flag that so many of these folks are saying that they are Hispanic. Whatever that means, none of that's racial classifications. No metaphors, race soldiers regularly. Well, yeah, even Jim Crow, in my view, is a metaphor. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, race soldiers will regularly use metaphors like that to minimize and practice deception. Victims, myself included, we often are still learning, so sometimes we don't have logic we need to articulate our views, and we'll sub in an analogy, comparison of some sort. Frequently, that produces a lot more confusion. Uh, if we can make an effort to be exact, specific, precise with our commentary, much obliged. I will prompt. Uh, let's see. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, that would be great. Just make sure everybody has an opportunity to share their views. If you have additional thoughts, uh, just uh, wait until everyone has spoken at least once, and then you can give your additional questions and or suggestions. Uh, if you're in a noisy environment, uh, if you do as best you can, uh, maybe get to a quieter spot, 
use your mute button, uh, share your thoughts, and then you can mute your line again. Uh, that way we don't have to battle uh, with the background noise. Uh, you can go back to watching the fight maybe. I don't think it started yet. But you can do that and then just come chat. Let us know if anything wacky is happening. Incidentally, I do not think I would be at any fight parties. That does not sound like fun uh, to be in a crowded environment uh, close to a lot of folks. Like, yeah, that's my view. Maybe I'm missing out. Uh, let's see. Uh, number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida, heard previously, should be with us. I'll nab by the hands as I see them. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to everybody. Uh, another DCS session uh, today. Uh, basically, uh, uh, in my uh, input, I uh, had an open discussion about. Uh, uh, well, I'm I'm trying to uh, basically. Uh, 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 bring up subject matter uh, where the young fellows can make choices about what they want to, what type of uh, pursuit they want to uh, go about in life other than sports and entertainment uh, as entertainers. Uh, and uh so i would ask them questions about uh like um uh what do you like to do uh that uh you can actually it can actually involve into you getting compensated for it and uh just have them stand up and express that to uh everybody in the uh in the group one at a time that sort of thing uh and uh and i'm trying to be consistent with it they get enough of uh uh course and into uh uh entertainment such as sports and uh rapping that sort of thing uh and uh so they need to have a much more broader understanding and the the many more options that are out there for someone who is just 13 years old, don't have any children at all, uh, this, you get more use out of the institution workplace that they go to on a daily basis from Monday to Friday, call school, uh, question the teacher, uh, question the administrators, the principal, the counselor about opportunities uh, to pursuit. I mentioned to them that they have a time frame, and if they waste that time during the age that they are, they would never get it back. They would never get that time back. And uh, so it's very vital that. Uh, whatever time that you're in 
you do your very best. You become the best of yourself and uh, you are able to functionally compete with others if you have that type of attitude. And uh, I think, I think uh, they basically, what's mainly important is, is that, you know, when you're talking to them, that they understand exactly what you're, you're talking about. And based on the, the uh, input that they had in the discussions, uh, it showed me that they had an understanding of what was going on. Other than that, we also watched uh, uh, about an hour of uh, this real life instance that that was put into a movie uh, about a black male by the name of Brian Banks uh, that was falsely accused of rape when he was 16 years old, tried as an adult. Uh, he opted to, uh, I forgot what the term is, but I just use the term settle uh, in the case, and he ended up doing six years in prison uh, for it. Uh, we haven't gotten to that part yet. We haven't really gotten to that part yet, but uh, we'll watch an hour of it, and uh, I won't be there this this coming Saturday, but uh, we'll eventually we'll finish the movie in itself, taking piece by piece, and I you know, have them all, all who want to participate into talking about what did, what did they notice in the movie, what did they get out of it, that sort of thing, and uh, trying to show things to them that are more up-to-date, modern, uh, more closer to their, their age, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we will every now and then go back into uh, history uh, from a standpoint because some things are very important uh, enough to uh, go there. But uh, all in all, it was pretty good, pretty good, uh, 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 you know, attachment with them today. And uh, that's all I can think about right now. Thanks for listening. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Again, bravo uh, for the young folks uh, spending time, constructive time and energy. Uh, the Brian Banks documentary, definitely important, uh, having them thinking about uh, decisions uh, that they make and trying to keep themselves uh, safe. I think plea bargain is the term. That's the one they try to yeah, get that's what it was. non-white people to take a plea as opposed to taking it to trial. They try to intimidate, especially if you're young, like he was at the time, uh, intimidate you like, oh man, go to trial, man, be 20 years or the rest of your life, you know, go ahead and play it down in six years, as he said, or something like that. So lots of that, especially if you, as I said, you're young, you don't have lots of nickels, same way, lots of nickels to pay your library bonds, lots of nickels that you can have Johnny Cochran, F. Lee Bailey, somebody that come in, hey, 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 back down. Don't be talking to a minor anyway without a guardian present. What's wrong with you? That type of thing. Excellent work to uh, get them using their brain computer so that they know some of the challenges uh, that they will experience as a black person uh, in a system of white supremacy. Um, speaking of younger folks, I included uh, with the, I guess, promotion online and such for the program, the image of Holly Robinson Pete 
Uh, she is the uh, black female uh, actress, long lengthy career, uh, but she's the wife of Rodney Pete, NFL football player. Uh, she had her children, I believe they were in Canada, the area of the world known as Canada, unless I'm mistaken, but they were trying to get on a flight to get back to, or to get wherever. They were stopped at the airport, were not allowed to get on the, oh no, this is what it was. They wanted the credit card. They went to the airport, they had their tickets, they had you know passports, all the stuff. And they said, well, where's the credit card that was used to purchase these tickets? And they're like, you know, our mom paid, bought these tickets for us. They're like, I don't know. You don't have your, the credit card that was used to purchase these tickets. We can't let you on the plane. And so she uh, wrote online, she said that her offspring ended up being stuck at the airport. I think they could have either had to stay at, like, literally sleep in the airport. You know how that happens sometimes if you miss your flight or, you know, whatever. Um, this race soldiers don't allow you to board the plane. Uh, and so you end up having to wait for the next flight or, you know, to figure out what you're going to do. Uh, so that could have happened to them. I think she said that there was like a relative or someone who was able to come and get them for the evening. And then they were able to get out the next day. But what kind of policy and procedure is that uh, where you have to show or you have to provide the actual card that was used to purchase the tickets? When is that standard policy and procedure? Like people buy tickets all the time. We're about to have the stupid holiday season uh, where parents, you know, they have children that are back in school now, so they got to buy them a ticket to get home and visit or buy a ticket for a relative that they want to come visit, ticket for a parent or whatever it is to come visit for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, Halloween, maybe, I don't know. Uh, that happens all the time, every day, even when it's not a holiday. That's standard operating procedure. And if you don't have the exact card used to purchase these tickets, you're not going to be on the flight. Matter of fact, people that fly regularly, is that included? Because, I mean, they send you, like, a pretty lengthy email, and it would generally include all the, like, material identification and every, documents that you need to bring, which you can't bring. They have a big email, and they'll have all that information right there. You get your tickets online. I'm pretty sure I have never seen you got to have the exact card used to buy these tickets. And if you don't have it in your on your person, when you go to board that plane, you are going to be SOL, out of luck, buddy. I've never heard of that. She wrote on her Twitter, and I'm sure Holly Robinson Peach, she's got, you know, thousands of tweet followers and all that stuff. So it got a lot of attention, and the airplane went tacky again. Like, oops, our bad, and that's a, sorry, and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. But I mean, all of that to racism, white supremacy, this is not an example of air rage. Uh, they didn't say that her offspring got on the plane and cut a fool and didn't want to wear a mask and all the rest of it. None of that. Uh, no unnecessary travel the same way that I've said it for many, many reasons. Uh, the COVID situation, the air rage situation, the racism, white supremacy situation, it's endless list of reasons why this is just not the best time for unnecessary travel. If it's an emergency, something comes up spur of the moment type of thing, all right. But anything other than that, not very safe in the skies, the train, nothing apparently. Number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564 
pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, looks like lots of folks are spectating. I'm not sure if they're uh, prepping for the fight, hoping Deontay Wilder can get his mojo back this time around. Brain damage. And even why is that such a big part of uh, the culture, especially those fights that ends up being like Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor, Galloway, Jack Johnson, Jim Jeffries, black guy and a white guy kind of fight like Rocky. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Y'all watching. Cut a fool like that right there. Peculiar in a system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in have a hand up. Hello. Our caller in Georgia. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Good evening. Hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I have to go back. Unfortunately, I was kind of in and out, didn't listen to all the clips. But um, I don't know if you had your story, because I guess it just came up. I just saw it today. Um, and then I think it's very important. In in Tennessee, I think it's Rutherford County. I don't want to Mafrizbo. I I can't say the name of the city right, but um, there was a class action suit, and I guess this this particular suit was talked about in this article by ProPublica. Um, children are children, and I guess they got some children got into a scuffle, and other children were around. And when I say children, I mean eight to twelve. They're children, not seventeen, where people may think is so. Children. So they children watch fights, you know, and one of the children, I guess, was yelling, "Stop! Stop! You know, stop fighting or whatever." From what I read, they didn't arrest the little children in the fight. They arrested the the witnesses. So about they didn't stop the fight. So it's a long, lengthy article. Um, and it's just horrible, the treatment they received. Again, they weren't in the fight, and these are black children. They were just by watching. Um, it's something that's going on in Tennessee, and from what I read, the article is horrifying. This particular county, um, they were in the business of warehousing children through the court system. Yeah, one said children. One of the children that was arrested in his class action suit was eight. So these are children. Um, so I think it's important just to see. If, I don't know if something like this is going on in other counties. Probably is. They were saying that in Tennessee the juvenile rate was five percent of. I guess um, putting children in the facilities. This particular county it was forty eight percent, and even now they promote oh. We may, we may not be um, warehousing, not warehousing, I'm sorry, that's a metaphor, but putting our children in these detention facilities, but we will take yours from around the state. Um, it's pretty horrible. I don't know if you, a clip came up about it. If you need me to send you, um, email you the article so you can put it on your sites or whatever, I'll be glad to do that. Um, I just thought it was pretty hard against someone who doesn't have children. I do like children. But I don't have children. It was just horrible, and just how they went through they went through the law carefully to find a charge to stick to the children. 
that to me that was the most the worst the most insidious horrible part the judge there is still the judge she's getting more money it's it's really horrible to read it just makes you very angry about what they're doing to our children um thank you Much obliged. Uh, I saw that report, or someone shared it with me earlier today, just before we went on the air. Uh, it's uh, titled, Black Children Were Jailed for a Crime That Doesn't Exist. Almost Nothing Happened to the Adults in Charge. And I think the way they pronounce this is Murfreesboro, I think. Tennessee, Murfreesboro. Not that that, you know means anything but yes folks can uh, check that out if anything it just made reminded me i don't have offspring but i mean wow it is a monumental task assignment producing offspring what is going to be our plan as attempted mom attempted dad as best we can to keep our child from ending up in this sort of situation system of white supremacy so sometimes there's nothing you can do but i mean hey we have to talk like super honest. What's going to be our plan? Can't be any sort of, you know, we we produce this child and then within two years, eh, I don't I don't think I am that crazy about you. Yeah, we'll have to have to pick up find somebody else and now nah, we'll get back to all this later, maybe. And then the child is like, what? what do you mean? Throw away children, Dr. Welsing? Super important report, uh, check it out. Probably is not something that is isolated to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, I suspect. They lock up a lot of black children, coast to coast. Uh, let's see, other folks who dialed in with a, a hand up, let's see. Can I be heard? Uh, Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. The only reason why I chimed in is because you said there was a lot of spectators and I was, <laughs> I was and um, I felt some kind of way. So then you said something about the fight. I didn't even know about the fight until you said something. So maybe that explains the atmosphere outside. Um, I wanted to talk about the emergency. Uh, vaccines that they're creating out of midair for these children. What was it, 5 to 11? Oh, my stars. So they're going to give them a lower dosage. It doesn't even sound like, that doesn't even make sense to me because what's a lower dosage? How do you, how do you determine how much of this uh, vaccination to give to a child? You haven't even really tested it unless you're testing it on, um, black children in Africa or other uh, countries. I, I just don't understand how you're able to do that. Um, this is going to e get even more sticky because there's going to be a lot of pe people that um, don't want their children to um, have that injection so soon. And um, there's a lot of, going to be a lot of children that won't even be able to go to school without having that vaccination. This is insane. And then the children aren't even just according to the report. They're not. They, yeah, they're coming back and forth. Uh, um, you know, sick, but 
it's not a lot. Now, I do believe that they're um, the children. They're always able to transmit germs to everybody. They're 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 just germ magnets. But to give them the vaccine so soon, you're just rushing this to give it to these little kindergartners through fifth grade. Ah, this I just I don't like it, and I just can see a lot of uh, complications with that, and a lot of sick children, and a lot of even death from them doing this to these children. And that's all I wanted to say. I did hear the reporting on Fresno about the uh, apartment complex. Um, but I don't. It was it was like in the beginning of the. Uh, um, reports. So I will mute my line and thank you. Uh, and I'll try to stop being a spectator. I'm I'm always spectating on Saturday. So before I get my news, uh, next time I'll push the. <laughs> and you can see me spectating. Okay, so I'll I'll go back on mute. Thank you. Much obliged, Bay Area mom. Thank you for not spectating. <clears throat> And that, you know, I thought that would be important. We do have parents uh, who participate uh, in the broadcast. That is a lot to process with the vaccine and, you know, which one, where I guess the Pfizer, uh, the doses and all that, is it going to be required, like depending on which area of the world that you're in? Wow. Lots to process. Uh, I have no idea uh, in terms of, you know, what my thoughts would be. Uh, around all that it would be i just i guess i would be nervous and reading as much as i could and then trying to check to see you know is the school going to require it or you know that sort of thing it's going to be the same type of thing you have to be vaccinated for five-year-olds to take them out someplace have to see how all that goes um i see i just i would suspect that there's going to be so much resistance uh just even from white people because so many white people have balked about the vaccine in fact they got so bad uh here in Washington State. Now, they had been predicting this for some time. Uh, Governor Jay Inslee, I was a former presidential candidate. He put in a mandate, state workers have to be vaccinated. Uh, that includes ferry uh, terminal operators. We have a number of ferries, the water taxi, all that stuff here. They had been saying, I think, for a good maybe two months or so when they started talking about all this, the mandate you know, being required and all the rest. Uh, and it was tons of white people. I'm not doing it. I'm not taking a vaccine. I don't care if they require it. If it is, peace out. Let me get my pink slipper or my resignation letter ready to roll. I'm not doing it. It was tons of enforcement officers. They had a big report in the Seattle Times this week that about a third, maybe slightly less, but right approximately at about a third of Seattle police officers, no evidence that they've been vaccinated. The deadline is supposed to be this week. And in the ferry terminal, it got so bad they had to cancel service because they didn't have enough ferry operators. This is, in, this is uh, today's paper. Cruise shortages bring unprecedented service cuts to Washington State ferries. This is another factor in why they have so many shortages. Governor Jay Inslee's dead deadline of October 18 for state workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or risk losing their jobs. Rumors have circulated for weeks of sick outs or a wave of people preparing to quit soon. We are aware of what is coming October 18th. Ujioka said, it's obvious this is on the verge of becoming unsustainable, the crew we already have. 
they even talked about they had uh, a group, it had to be mostly white people, <laughs> that they were waiting to catch the ferry. They had to wait for three hours to get it right now. Imagine that. It takes three. You worked a long day, tired. It's been cold here. Like, summer is over. I think it barely got above 50 degrees today. And you got to wait three hours for the fans. Some of the ferries, it's like an hour ride. <laughs> Even once you get on the uh, once you get on the ferry, depending on where you're going. Wackiness. That would be travel, too. That's not unnecessary travel if you're, you know, that's part of your commute or whatever. But, I mean, it's just more evidence of the chaos. Uh, if we have any other parents, uh, let us know your thoughts on the vaccine madness or other reports. Uh, the number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Okay, here we go. May I be heard? Yes, sir, we can hear you. Oh, we can hear you. I did I did hear you and then we just heard nothing. Are you still with Hello? us? Yes, yes, we can hear you, sir. Uh greetings, Gus. Greetings to the callers and listeners. Um contacting you from the metropolitan area, um, New York. Um it's been a lot of a lot of issues here where I've heard um other coworkers from other companies have not been able to uh, sustain or maybe stay at their company because they're asking for vaccination. If you don't have vaccination, you can't come into the building. If you can't come into the building, you can't work. And um, I don't know how many people have been laid off yet, but I know that it's probably it's highly probable um, eventually. Um, also, with uh, another friend that I know of that works in sanitation in New York City, uh, this past week, they told people that weren't vaccinated to go home, and um, he wasn't able to leave on time as usually as he would, so he had to stay and work the extra hours because people were not vaccinated. So it's it's been tough on both sides, um, and I, I'm not a anti-vaxxer in the sense, but I also, I'm not very leery about the vaccination, um, and my company is is pushing the same thing, which it's a, it's a privately owned company and they're asking for people to upload their vaccination cards into a system so it can be scanned and noted. Um, so it's getting a little, getting a little difficult here. And as it gets colder, you can't really go outside and go into restaurants and, um, go inside their premises. You have to eat outside. And as it gets colder, obviously that becomes a little difficult, but 
it's a good thing in a sense where it forces people to come inside and actually cook their own food, which is better. Um, as a, as an attempted parent, one of the difficult things is my son does not want to get vaccinated, which I applaud him on. But the difficult aspect is that there's certain institutions and places he can't get into. Um, currently, I'm trying to transfer my son into a different high school. And I've found out from the guidance counselor from this high school that they are not allowing students from the neighborhood due to, um, a, I guess you could say, a bad reputation of the neighborhood. I'm located in Bedstock, Brooklyn, and um, I'm not going to name the school, but the school basically is not taking children from the neighborhood. Instead, it's taking children from outside of the state and taking them in. And according to the guidance counselor, these are his words, it's a way to keep the GPA or the, the, um, the school grade up instead of um, bringing kids from the neighborhood, children from the neighborhood that may bring the school's grade or rating down, uh, which I thought was really interesting. I, I, <laughs> I've never heard of anything like that. Um, but that being said, that's, that's one of the, the big dilemmas in far, as far as school goes. And with my son, I'm hoping that things can continue for him and, and will be open uh, because he chooses not to get vaccinated as, as well as myself. Um, so we'll continue pushing forward and see how well we can maintain our health. And uh, that'll be all for now. Thank you for your time. I will mute my line. Peace. Hmm. Much obliged. Uh, attempted parents, I thought that is something or a lot to think about. Now, with your son, you said he does not want to be vaccinated. So in New York, they like Seattle. They have pretty strict uh, vaccine policy, like you can't go to restaurants, couldn't go to the Yankee game this week uh, without proof of vaccination. If they put that in place, like children have to under 12 children have to be vaccinated to go to school or whatever it is what what's that conversation going to be like with your son um it's it's a situation where i'm going to try to see if there's a program that would allow i've, I've spoken to other parents other parents have gone into uh some deep research and found out that there are other ways to get um, their children to receive the same type of schooling while working online. And um, if that, if it comes to that type of situation, I'll retreat to those, those parents, find out the resources that they actually found out. And those accredited schools that are truly accredited, because one of the things that has happened since a lot of situ, you know, a lot since COVID a lot of colleges, even schools all across, have been putting up fraud, have been kind of doing fraud and, a, a, you know, putting out that they're accredited institutions, but they're actually not um, due to COVID. So you, you really have to do your research. So I, w I would reach back out to a lot of these parents that I've found out that have been going into that for the meantime. Um, so far, his school isn't. Um, forcing vaccinations, and I think that that is uh, 
it's definitely a plus in the guidelines that I see with this school. So I'm going to keep pushing forward with that and see what happens. Right on, right on. Awesome that you have a network of uh, helpful parents to offer resources and you know other options for your child if they are serious and don't want the jab. Spectacular. Uh, as I said, lots to consider for attempted parents. Uh, as for the school that's, uh, I guess, excluding the children in Bed-Stuy, I think that is kind of common where they'll have schools where they want a prestigious reputation, so they will exclude black students because they'll give that same type of lame excuse. You don't have to say that it's racism. It's, well, you all will pull down the GPA as opposed to if these students, if there's some sort of disparity, disparity, uh, disparity if they have some, you know, academic deficiencies, why not have them? in the best possible school, best resources, best teachers, you all should be able to correct those deficiencies quick. Why would that be an issue? No, that's not what they wanna do. I suspect also this is secondary, like they always come up with great excuses to exclude black children. But I also think there's a financial uh, incentive. If they're getting students from out of state, they probably have to pay additional taxes or what have you, because they're, you know, out of state and all that, uh, that would just be an additional suspicion. There would be lots of motivation to let's get some white people that, you know, live in Jersey or Connecticut or Massachusetts or whatever it is. Uh, and the black people that live a block from the school, man, man, potential looters, muggers anyway. Uh, let's see. Correct. I'm sorry. Oh, I just stated correct. <laughs> correct. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see. Other folks, if you have commentary, observations, attempted parents, thoughts on the uh, vaccine for children, uh, the number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have commentary. Folks might be either spectating or really ready and excited. Oh, our caller in Georgia. Yes, ma'am. I guess no one's saying anything. Um, I guess, I don't know if it came up again about, I know we were talking about the vaccinations, um, but, you know, in California, they're going to start enforcing it again. And I heard the date was November 4th, I believe, which coincidentally would be after the baseball season where the Dodgers, I know, I think they're in the playoffs from what I heard. I don't keep up, but I think, and I know they, these past few years, they've been known to have some good teams go to the playoffs. So after the white people go to the playoffs, you know, and the Dodgers win, we will vaccination, boom. Uh, vaccination is being enforced. So I think we talked about that before with New York and after the U.S. Open. Um, yeah. And I'm very, well, I'm not surprised, but I know I grew up in New York City. Um, 
And I guess, well, my aunt, she used to volunteer with the schools. She volunteered at the high school. I've been at the elementary school I went to, which was in Flatbush. And she will always um, tell people that, because my address was in Bethesda-Stuyvesant, but I went to school with, you know, my mother wanted me to go to school with my cousins, you know, be with family. And they lived in Flat, and he lived in Flatbush, so I went to school there. And how those schools, they were better. Even though, the, you know, public schools, that they were better. So that's weird to me that they're excluding people. You know, things have changed. I was a child many years ago. So, so I guess things have changed. Um, and I think, I know with a lot of times with the charter schools for the black people, I know, I think they would say things like that. Why are you excluding so-and-so, these children? But, you know, they got rid of that push. I don't hear about that as much as I used to, but I guess now it's excluding the black children. Sorry for the um, the parent in New York City. If possible, well, I don't know how. I believe, I'm sure the child's grades are fine, but I went to a different, I guess, middle and high school in the city. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, caller in Georgia. The It looks like the California vaccine mandate begins at the end of November, November 29. Baseball season will be over. Over by then, in California, they have two baseball teams in the baseball playoffs. So if that's, you know, weighing in on the decision, either the Dodgers or the Giants might make it all the way to the series and all that. So they can cut a fool out there. Incidentally, I can only say as, you know, I'm in uh, the U Village right now. The University of Washington Stadium is like a block away from us. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks, they play downtown, the Mariners, uh, all that stuff. They've had a vaccine mandate here for about a month and a half or so. And, I mean, you can the Seahawks, they played on Thursday this past week. If folks saw the game or what have you, the pictures you can see now outdoor venues you're supposed to have a mask on you can look at the pictures from the game and see now how many people have a mask on they said that for a lot of the stadiums you know that i think down in the south especially where you are supposed to have a mask on if it's whatever the threshold is 500 people or whatever for outdoor events and the same thing i said a couple weeks ago like who's going to enforce that they were talking about uh the big house at michigan ninety thousand. Who's got, how many enforcement officers do you need for that? How much overtime is that? Put that mask on. Put that mask on. What are you doing? Who is going to go through and do that? Especially you got like, talk about a gang. This is like tens of thousands of liquored up white people. Who is going to do that? So they could, maybe they have, you know, a plan all, you know, concocted that I just haven't seen yet, but just going by the evidence from the outdoor events and such that I've seen thus far, people are not wearing a mask. Uh, at least it is not unanimous. There are lots of folks who are not complying. Same thing I said before. It's kind of hard to drink a beer with a mask on. And many, 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 many of the white people who go to these sporting contests, they intend to consume a beverage, a beer, or eat while they're at these contests. That's the whole point. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. 
Uh, may I be heard again? Uh, I'll call her, I guess, in the New York area. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I was just, um, I, I appreciate the, the prior caller speaking in regards to, uh, you know, the, the you know, un, un, unfair or unjust treatment in New York City of, of most of the students. And one of the things I will say is that, that what made me understand and follow up, and that's one of the things that um, I did speak about that I'll, I'll add in, there, there are two things. When I spoke to the guidance counselor of the school, who was very candid, he said one of the things is that he noticed that they didn't want black children to get that education to compete with them, to compete with the white students. And that's one of the main things that he noticed. That's the reason why they're ostracizing and keeping most of the black children out. And, and my son, for instance, in this situation, doesn't come from a middle school that's um, um, average. He comes from a very big, um, very uh, scientific math and science uh, middle school, predominantly Asian-dominated. And that's part of the reason why I wanted him to go to a school in Bedford-Stuyvesant is because I wanted him to go to a predominantly Black school to get some type of um, Afrocentric basis not only from me at home, but when he goes to school, so it's reflective all around him. Um, and the second thing I, I explained to him was that I was going to call in, which I've already done, and file complaints with New York City and file complaints with the DOE and make sure that it's documented. And he, one of the important things that he told me, he said that the majority of people, he said, because he has a sister, and this is interesting, in the 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 um the three one one on in the system and she deals with people filing complaints every day and he said that the majority of black people do not file complaints and get things documented he said she said he said she came back to him and said that it's mainly just white people filing complaints about potholes about loud noise anything you name it they were filing complaints. And she said it was very rare to catch a non-white person on the phone filing a complaint and, and actually expressing themselves and documenting it about certain issues that they had. And that's where he reiterated to me, it's important that I follow up and file complaints towards the school and file complaints towards um, the New York City uh, Board of Education as well. Um, but that said, I'll mute my line. Much obliged um, documentation. I feel like we say that word all the time on neutralizing workplace racism. Maybe not said enough if that's what the report is, that it's white people exclusively who are doing this, making reports, you know, calling to report this or that, documenting that sort of thing. Follow up, document, and be as specific as you can. We try to say that all the time with dates times as much detail as you can uh, write it down document and report things like that is so crucially important even just creating what they call a paper trail where you have lots of different reports even if every time they say well we're not going to do anything or what have you sometimes just an accumulation of those reports can have an impact might be down later on in time but can have a cumulative effect where maybe it's one or two or three of these, but when it's 
10, 15. Can't, I think even that fella that they arrested, I played in the report uh, in New Jersey where he had been terrorizing folks. This man got like 20 different reports of this guy practicing race. And they said that practicing racism, something racial, call somebody a nigra and all the rest of it. Document, report, follow up, as they say. Uh, other folks' comments they want to make sure they get in. Folks satisfied? Anything else that they need to get in or they got all their thoughts in? They can go get to the fight. May I be heard? Hey. Uh, I heard both of you. Let's see. We'll get our caller in Florida first. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, just uh, two things really quick. Uh, I heard that term, I think it's bias, intimidation. Uh, I don't know if they have anywhere where I can, uh, or where anybody can look up the definition that they have for that. I guess they have it as a charge, I guess, for that. Um, I think it was the, the white man that lived in that uh, condominium area. I think they said it was 22 charges. Um, I found that interesting. And then they made it seem like, well, maybe, I think maybe he'll get charged or something. Um, and the last one was the, uh, they was using the term Facebook whistleblower uh, and that white woman where she the the language she was using um she was saying that the person was basically like not credible or something like that like she wasn't accurate i guess from what she was saying about uh the effect that facebook has um and the guy asked her about whether or not it makes things better or worse i think for teenagers um and then the white woman now, it was interesting now. She said she said the word make things better, but she said, I guess in the, the study that they had, it either made things better or didn't have a material impact. <laughs> I, I don't know what teenagers would be saying that rather than just saying, you know, it's something better or worse. Like, I think that's a term that she fused um, into uh, describing, like, that statistical study or whatever. So I was wondering if you had noticed that, Gus. Um, and that's pretty much all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged. Uh, the suspected race soldier in New Jersey. Make sure I get his name. There's too much of the anonymity. Uh, Edward Cagney Matthews is indeed facing the charge of racial intimidation. 
don't know what that means. They'll have a lot of those charges like that, racial intimidation. It's not just practicing racism, racist violence, racist intimidation. Like, can't say even John Gruden, the Raiders coach this week, they found an email where he said uh, he called, said a black person had uh, rubber lips like a Michelin tire. And even there, he didn't say he wasn't racist. He said, I don't have a racial bone. Racial intimidation. Uh, but the report on Facebook, that is uh, with words, talk about that all the time. I don't know too many teams who would talk that way. I think they even gave uh, the age median was, I think, about 16 for folks who participated in the study. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think they neutral impact of its phrase. Like, I didn't talk that way when I was a teen. Do you feel better or worse after you go on Instagram? That's, you know, make it plain, man. Make it plain. I'm 16. I haven't even got a high school diploma yet. Struggling with the SAT. But, yeah, that's that whole segment where they had the, I forgot what her title was, at Facebook, uh, was fascinating uh, in her efforts to kind of what they call spin and redirect our focus in terms of how we think about all of this. Words are very important. That type of person generally is paid a lot of money. The person to be, especially these times with everything that's happening, lots of money to be very precise with word choice, especially when you go out to do an interview. Uh, let's see. Much obliged to our caller in Florida. Uh, the uh, I think that was our caller in New York who spoke up simultaneously. Uh, yes, I, w I was just commenting on the um, Tyson and, and uh, or Fury and Wilder fight. It, it just, um, if anybody was really taking a look, they would, um, if you get a chance, you could check out Muhammad Ali has a documentary that's on PBS currently. Pardon. Um, he has a documentary that's currently on PBS uh, public uh public station on um, here, but it, sh it should be uh, national. You can see um, a lot of stories and things in regards to Muhammad Ali, and so much of it was, was racial, but also it, it, it feels like the Fury and Wilder thing is the same thing over and over again, which is a black man versus a white man, which is what basically <laughs> the majority of um, people want to see most of the time, just playing on the basic tropes that they've been um, implementing for centuries. Uh, that said, I'll mute my line. It never gets old. Uh, Conor McGregor and uh, Floyd Mayweather, that's it. Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffrey, just over and over again. Get some white person and a black person. And, oh, man. I'm so excited. And then if the fellow that we don't like doesn't win, generally talking about white people, let's go burn the town down. Had a number of lynchings on it. Talk about that Monday, maybe, uh, the book American Atrocity. Um, Guy Lancaster, the white man's name. Uh, but, yeah, lots of times that's been uh, the uh, Jack Johnson, Jim Jeffries fight. They had a number of lynchings just after that. White fella didn't win. I'm mad. We got to go kill some black people. 
could have killed, could have lynched Jack Johnson too. He knew that as well. But yeah, should have. You talk about getting old. This is the third time around for this fight specifically. But yeah, we've seen this bunches and bunches of times, regardless of who wins. Still, the system of white supremacy. Incidentally, Muhammad Ali is like he never left us. He just had a documentary that came out on uh, PBS. I know you said it's currently on TNT uh, that folks can tune into, but he just had a uh, like brand new documentary released on PBS. Uh, I know Ken Burns, uh, white man. They had been questioned like, why is this white man? Why does he get all the documentaries on PBS? Saying why don't you make space for some black filmmakers, non-white filmmakers, which I totally agree with. Uh, but a lot of his documentaries do deal with racism. I don't know how you talk about Muhammad Ali and not have white supremacy at the forefront. But, yeah, he just had the project there and project on TNN, Muhammad Ali, like he never even passed away. Uh, let's see. Other folks, uh, thoughts, comments they need to get in? And, and you know, Gus Wilder kind of resembles Jack Johnson. Of all things, tall, uh, balding at the head, gold, gold in his mouth. <laughs> wow. That plays a part. Hopefully he does not have a white woman. Don't need to emulate all of the errors of Jack Johnson. That, I don't they think so he much does. about R. Kelly. Right yeah. on. Right on, right on. They talk so much about uh, R. Kelly. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. You, you're, you're about to say something uh, about uh, R. Kelly. Go ahead. Just I was going to say they talk so much during the R. Kelly trial. He was convicted of the Man Act, uh, transporting a minor uh, across state lines for sex purposes. That's what they convicted uh, Jack Johnson for way back when, uh, and a number of other black males as well. I think Chuck Berry also, but the man act. That same thing, like our caller in Georgia was talking about, we got to root around. We got these nigger children here, or we got Jack Johnson here. We got to find something to convict him of. Let's think. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, we'll make up something. We got loitering? Something. Man act. Yes, that's it. I'm not talking about R. Kelly, but that is Jack Johnson. That is exactly what happened. He did get a pardon uh, from former President Donald Trump. That was all. You were going to say something, retired firefighter? Yeah, I, I was just thinking about the report on the uh, historical black colleges, and uh, I, I uh, went to two of them. And uh, I was just thinking, was there ever a time where the uh, state states where those institutions located at uh, gave a just amount of money to any of them. I don't, I don't think that that's ever happened before. So uh, I don't expect it to, to change, uh, you know, at all. Unless it's some situation that whereas uh a majority of white students go into the schools and they would not have that external nickname, uh, historical black colleges. Well, just, just a thought. I actually gave it some thought. 
uh, because they've had a number of different reports where they have talked about a growing number of non-black students. Sometimes it'll be so-called Latinos. Sometimes it'll be individuals classified as white uh, who are attending HBCUs. I was thinking that they're going to do some so-called gentrifying of the HBCUs. Oh, yeah, I could see them. Hey, hey, we got to get our finances correct. Let's let's get this infrastructure correct. We can't have all these dilapidated dorms now that we're going to boot these niggers out and make room for some other folks. Like, oh, yeah, they will have Morehouse and Grambling, like sparkling, state-of-the-art if they're going to replace the black people. But if it's just going to be still most of the black people there, yeah, we'll have this problem for the next as long as the system of white supremacy exists, we'll be discussing this in 2035. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did somebody have comments here? Well, I was just hearing background. Background noise? Not sure. Yeah, I hear it. Like it is fast and must be getting close to fight time. Like uh, getting excited and revved up. Like, uh, did folks have uh, commentary to to share, or are they? Hi, guys. Oh, our Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. So I was thinking since there's a fight now, it just seems like a lot of this stuff is like is pre-planned. Um, so right after the verdict, you have another fight. And then, like you said, uh, well, when how they convicted um, R. Kelly on the Man Act um, and then just threw all these other things into the Man Act to get, um, get him sentenced. Uh, and then we have this fight that we're going off to celebrate. And we're not even thinking about how they got them on the Man Act. We're just, oh, they got them. And even the guys that uh, may be watching the fight, they're not. I don't think they're thinking about that either, but it's just a relief. Okay, ooh, now everybody's not being mad at me for not being mad at R. Kelly or whatever it is that guys have to go through when we're collectively trying to make sure we uh, cancel somebody. So I was just thinking about the, how that fight, that everything must have been already pre-planned how they were going to do it. And then he had a fight to air a couple of weeks after it. And I don't know, just just random thinking while you guys were talking. Okay, I'll leave my line. Oh, those fights are planned way in advance, like months and months and months, uh, sometimes even before that. You know, these are big and white people generally, even when Don King was involved, white people generally are the ones who are, hey, millions of dollars, you know, coons step aside, you know, we'll, we'll call you when it's time for you to get a little brain damage, but we're talking about the contracts and drawing all this up and who's going to get the Showtime rights and the HBO rights and all the rest of it, like sit down. We got to plan all this out, get their television networks and how much is my share going to be and all the rest of it. Like, oh yeah. So it easily, that could have been part of the plan. This is so heavily promoted. Get so many people watching this and paying attention to it. Like just, Dr. Gerald Horn, The Bitter Sweet Science. Make sure I post that link since folks are on their boxing. I uh, just talked about that, how that was such a huge component of white supremacy culture for so long for distraction purposes and keeping your eyes on the ball. Dr. Welsing even talked about that in the ISIS paper, the symbolism of the leather, leather gloves and all the rest of it. And then 
why they didn't even want to have a Jack, Jack Johnson as champion anyway. Uh, this is supposed to be uh, for symbolism of white masculinity, not the likes of, you know, Deontay Wilder, Jack Johnson, Marvin Hagler, be running around talking about they're the great Mike Tyson, like Jesus Lord. Like that's, that's not what this is about at all. But yeah, it easily back could have been a part of it. Uh, retired firefighter. Yes. Uh, speaking of Mr. Wilder, uh, uh, it it should be some concern about uh, the chances of him getting uh, some serious hurt. Uh, he fired his uh, black trainer from this is this is the third time that he's fought this white male, and uh, both times he the the, the fight was stopped. Uh, because he, uh, well, they would call it, they would call it technical knockouts, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, he fired his first trainer, uh, because the black, the black male, uh, trainer that he had was thinking about him and, and quote unquote, threw in the towel, the towel, throw in the towel. If anybody didn't know is, is, is a symbol for, okay, we, we concede, we concede the fight. Uh, he's, so that uh his uh his fighter was in some deep trouble uh if not from a competitive standpoint also from a possible possible physical standpoint these guys are capable of killing each other as we all know uh boxing is a very dangerous activity i wouldn't call it a sport <laughs> a dangerous activity and uh he is the type of person it seems that he would do whatever it takes to quote unquote win whatever that means in something like this which is which is actually was a formula for that assisted mr ali's uh issues that he ended up developing uh and uh so it's kind of like a dangerous combination to have that type of uh, intense desire to want to succeed, but yet you're dealing dealing in a dangerous environment where someone that actually can kill you. And uh, so hopefully uh, he would not have to uh, come to those type of decisions tonight. Uh, I'm not actually going to see it. I probably, I'll get the results from it in some kind of way. You can't help it. It's all, it'll be all over the place. But that's all I have to say. Thank you. Oh, yeah. They will definitely let you get some brain damage. Uh, they just had someone earlier this year who died in a boxing ring. So, absolutely. Like uh, Muhammad Ali, the ending part. Uh, and or just, you know, to have a black person be beat on. Like, love that. Get some brain damage. And you end up with no money. and can't think correctly like they love that will you out on stage joe lewis lots of the bitter sweet science dr gerald horn we just talked about that that book is all about the sport of boxing gangsterism and white supremacy racism that's and i mean really white supremacy and gangsterism those are just synonyms that's one of the same but i mean i just mentioned that with may west she mentioned in the book 
white Hollywood actress, but she's also uh, managing black male boxers uh, at a time when you didn't even have such a thing. Talk about patriarchy. Uh, Mr. Blue, who was with uh, retired firefighter uh, and I and down I, in Florida down in for Florida the, uh, the uh, retreat, you should be with us as well. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all of the callers. Um, here in New York, we've experienced, and um, I've been um, listening in the background to Apropos of Nothing, the pod, um, the book club, uh, neutralizing workplace racism. But here in New York, it has been a really difficult time with the mandates. I, as an um, art teacher working with the museums, and um, several of my close friends who have been working as part-time teachers, um, teaching chess to primarily non-white students, um, social workers, and um, teachers particularly in the DOE. Um, one thing that has happened is that um, even though the mandates have said that um, you could file for medical and religious exemptions, um, those things were not honored. And unfortunately, I was terminated from my position at the Brooklyn Museum um, because my religious exemption, spiritual exemption was not taken sincerely or my medical exemptions was not taken sincerely. And that has happened with other um, non-white, specifically non-white um, teachers within the DOE. And um, some of my close friends have had to get vaccinated here in New York City. Um, some of my friends who are attempted parents, non-white friends who are attempted parents, have had difficulties with their children entering into the schools um, because of non-vaccination status or um, mass type of mandates. And um, most of the time, the opposition has come from um, people who classify themselves as white as far as administrators or principals. And it's been a very, very rough and challenging time here in New York City, um, particularly for non-white um, care workers, teachers, um, civil servants, and um, it's been very challenging, which is why I haven't um, been here in person to listen actively um, to speak to the cows, but I've been listening in the background. And I just want to, um, I appreciate the constructive nature of this. Um, and this is also a very confusing time for a lot of non-white, non-white people here in New York City. And um, I don't, and as I've been listening around across the country because of these mandates and um, the, the very challenging and very serious decisions people have had to make. I was part-time at um, the museum, but many of my friends who have either lost their jobs, were full-time employees of the Department of Education or some type of civil servants or healthcare workers. And um, that was something that was in the report was just very, um, that just struck a note, uh, just made me feel very emotional and very concerned because I know that it's happening across the country. And I just wanted to say, I appreciate very constructive information all the time and the constructive um, reports uh, neutralizing workplace racism, the book club, and um, the compensatory call-in. I've been directing friends and sharing the links, and I hope that more people will listen so um, we can be less confused. And um, thank you, everyone, and I uh, hope everyone the best. <laughs> 
Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Mr. Blue. I am, uh, man, saddened to hear about uh, you losing your museum job. Like, uh, he was just, as I say, he was with us with the retreat, talking about finishing up his master's program and all that. Like, man, that is, uh, I'm not surprised, though, to hear, uh, saddened, but not surprised to hear that uh, a lot of non-white people have been impacted. He's talking about care work, uh, caretakers uh, and the like uh, who have been terminated for vaccination proof. I pointed out now, I'm sure some white people have been fired, but at least here in Seattle, uh, they had enforcement officers. The deadline is this week. I said a third of them, no proof of vaccination status. I don't know if they're going to terminate a third of the police officers. The ferry workers, I told you, they said lots of those folks. They had said months out, I'm not getting the jab. I'm good. That means I'm fired. Take this job and shove it. I had said, now, are they really going to do mass firings of all these white people who say they're not getting a shot? They've had reports this week, but they did say a number of white people did go ahead and, you know, get the shot, hold their, go ahead and accept. Uh, but I've seen lots of defiance throughout all of this. So what is the disparity? It would not surprise me at all that there is some racism, white supremacy, and it being extremely draconian uh, with black people who no proof of vaccination or whatever you took too long to get in or the exemption, ah, get out of here. White people, Mr. Fuller said they don't get fired, they get transferred. We will have to see. But definitely, I hope uh, you're able to compensate for all of that and taking care of your health, safety, as well as, as best you can under these conditions. Uh, Seattle, like New York, they have that mandate. I think we had a few folks in the New York area who were talking about the mandate and making it tough if you want to go to restaurants and out to places of that nature. Same thing here. So very confusing, difficult times on many fronts. Uh, we just try to do the best we can getting logic, make quality decisions, and uh, hopefully replace the system of white supremacy with justice sooner than later uh, so that we can minimize because, wow, it has been one this year. Uh, we have done our uh, three hours, uh, I guess, if folks are going to get off to the fight, brain damage and all that, we will wrap up just in time. It's not that it means anything, but, uh, or I guess it's accuracy. I say strive for accuracy. I think the first time around, it was a draw. Not that, you know, strive for accuracy. Uh, regardless of who wins, there are many, many more things important than a white man and a black male having fisticuffs for money. We'll be here on Monday. Uh, the book again, American Atrocity, Guy Lancaster, White Man. Uh, his book is all about lynchings in this part of the world. Uh, we'll tie to the school disturbances and mask disruptions, all of that. Uh, same time or normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific this Monday. Uh, and it could be uh, two white people this week, white woman on Wednesday. But I'll probably, by the time we get to Monday, I'll be able to update that on the program. So just tune in Monday evening and we'll have the rest of the info. Much obliged for everyone who joined us this evening. Hope it has been worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best. Man, oh, man. The Halloween shenanigans and just regular old white supremacy racism shenanigans in full effect. You need sober thinking amidst all the confusion and terrorism. Uh, in addition to being sober, if you're going out and about, be alert. Uh, if it looks like somebody is being hostile and rowdy, 
exit. You should be thinking, hey, this person, she even might be armed. In fact, he, she might have an entire entourage uh, of armed folks who are ready to kill and maim. If you are not prepared to die right now and or kill right now, exit. Very dangerous times, no unnecessary travel either. Uh, if you're driving, uh, you are not on the cell phone, you're sober and you're buckled in, uh, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Uh, beyond all of that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks, of course. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.